In 2005, when Russell T Davies, RTD, brought Doctor Who back to TV, one of the breakout characters of that first series was Captain Jack Harkness, a flirtatious rogue con man played with all of John Barrowman's charisma. He died at the end of that series, but, well, he got better pretty quickly. In 2006, the revived Doctor Who second series, the mysterious organisation of Torchwood was set up. Queen Victoria founded it to defend Britain from aliens and other such matters supernatural. The Doctor met the present day, well, 2006 Torchwood, and there was a big battle with Daleks and Cybermen, and the organisation of Torchwood pretty much got annihilated. But that wasn't the end of Torchwood, no, it was just the beginning. Even before RTD revived Doctor Who, he'd wanted to make an adult sci-fi crime drama in the style of shows like Buffy the Vampire Sire, but set in the UK. After Doctor Who's successful revival, RTD worked that concept into a spin-off of Doctor Who. So, although that London Torchwood fell in Doctor Who's second series, later the very year those episodes broadcast, Torchwood came roaring back onto TV in the form of Torchwood Wales, led by none other than Captain Jack. Broadcast later in the evenings for adult audiences, Torchwood was full of violence and cursing and sexuality, unlike its parent show. It was the start of RTD's media empire, with Doctor Who and its two spin-offs, Torchwood for Adults and The Sarah Jane Adventures for Kids, all airing over those same few years, starting towards the end of 2006. While RTD nominally showran all three shows, the amount of work involved meant that, effectively, other folks fulfilled a lot of showrunner duties, such as Chris Chibnall basically being head writer for Torchwood's first and second series. Of course, Chris Chibnall would end up showrunning Doctor Who itself come 2018, but for now, let's think back to 2006, Torchwood's first series, and what we all thought of it. So we're going to talk about the first series of Torchwood, which ran towards the end of 2006 through the start of 2007, where it overlapped with Doctor Who's third series in the process for a little while. I watched it back then myself, and Ngiga and Morph have both seen the show previously as well, but Code very recently came to the show herself, and she's only seen series one, so that's all we're going to talk about today. We're going to keep our lips sealed about future developments And we'll dive into each of the 13 episodes in a minute. But first, just in general, what did we think of the first season of the show? I really loved it, which was really unexpected because Chibnall exists and I don't like that. But honestly, it was really fun. I thought it was a different take on the sort of sci-fi sort of genre like uh well, not really genre because it's been done before like i i've mentioned that like i've watched primeval and that's probably why i didn't jump into torchwood because i was thinking it was literally just primeval and except in the doctor who universe um and if you've not seen primeval it is it is basically the um same premise it's like a secret group of people who sort of join together and fight things that come through rips in time so i was sitting there like yeah well if i've seen Primeval, and I used to really love it, like, surely Torchwood is not gonna live up to what I thought of that show. Um, so I didn't really care to watch it, but I was bored recently, I didn't have anything to do, and I realised there was this big chunk of Doctor Who that I'd been completely missing. So I finally sat down and watched it, and fucking hell, it was great. Honestly, and I think yeah. the reason it is so good and so distinct is probably because the characters are so fully realised. Um, so like it never, it never felt like at any point I was comparing it to Primeval or whatever, even though that was sort of a, an aspect of it that I was always thinking, you know, it's a bit similar. 
it, it just felt so much of its own thing. Um, felt so much of its own thing, even compared to Doctor Who. But but where it crossed over was so you know it just felt natural, and also it crosses over more obviously towards the end. But you know, we'll get into that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just thought it was great. I think bringing up Primeval at all really puts it into context of like 2006, 2007, where Russell T Davies's Doctor Who, Torchwood, the Sarah Jane Adventures were all this huge British media empire and other shows were trying to copy them or do things in a similar space like Primeval. I think you, you can consider it maybe not just a response to Torchwood, but also like kind of ITV wanting their own thing to compete with Doctor Who. Like even though it's more similar to Torchwood, it is still in an essence like an effects driven adventure show about like supernatural incursions. Like it's in that sort of mould. Yeah, it really was a big t- Like towards the end when we had Doctor Who Series 3 starting... And the pilot of the Sarah Jane Adventures and the end of Torchwood Series 1, that was all in the same week. Uh, first week of yeah. January, I think. You know, it's, it's, it's a long time since that. And it's interesting going back and watching these shows because that really is a... Uh, well, it's not a forgotten time, but it's very much a gone time. But it was a yeah. nice time. And you sort of realise how, at the time, British TV was kind of... I don't know how aware they were, but it was sort of like almost connected. You know, they're all sort of being influenced by each other in some way. Certainly, when it comes to Primeval, you can you can really feel the influence that Torchwood had. In a way, you could sort of view it as ITV's sort of answer to Torchwood. Yeah, absolutely, know? yeah. So, but yeah, I thought it was like, but they were distinct enough, so I didn't ever get bothered by the fact that it was a sort of I'd already seen it in a sense. You know, they were quite different, even if the sort of core elements were the same. Yeah. <laughs> How did you other guys take the first series when you first watched it? I think um, Torchwood, as Code mentioned, is really rich on character development. So, um, you know, we go through the patterns of each person's story. You start with Gwen, into Tosh, into Owen. No, sorry, into Yanto, into Owen. Um, and eventually they all kind of come together. And, uh, you know, I, I know it's, it's recognised as quite a cringe line. Toshiko, the poor girl who'll screw any passing alien that gives her a pendant. Owen, so strong he gets in a cage with a weevil, desperate to be mauled. Yanto, hiding his cyber girlfriend in the basement. Your three comrades here pump bullets into her, remember? Um, and I think it's great. I think it's it does actually lead to something. Um, I just wish it hadn't been Shibnall to write the finale. <laughs> yeah. Can I drop the ball with the plot? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Gig, what did you think of the first series in your experiences? Um... The first season of Torchwood, I think it's a really nice trip around a very distinct and unique set of concepts that all come together to make something that's got very much got its own take. And that's kind of that's what kind of covers for all the faults that it might have and things like that. I think there's something really interesting and valuable about a show that approaches this idea of the supernatural procedural team gang thing with such a clear thematic focus on death and also work-life balance as well. It's and it's just a really good formula for getting all these strange interpersonal conflicts that the characters have and also just getting a nice... Uh, Kind of just sort of a nice linking ideology between all of them about this idea of death as something that sort of consumes, and it's just, it's just even when it's kind of messy or shit or all over the place, it's just it's strangely compelling. I'm I'm a bit more removed from Tortured maybe because I'm I didn't, never watched it when it was originally on, and it's not something I've rewatched like a great deal, particularly in the early seasons. But there's something there's a unique charm, especially in season one. Yeah, I think it all coheres together really well because they do all that stuff about 
death being completely final and nothing beyond being beyond it. Like in the first episode, when they use the resurrection glove on that guy that got stabbed, that's what he says. And then they keep killing Susie. That's reiterated. But the focus on the mundane in life is what Jack keeps pushing Gwen. Like that's what keeps you human. That what's that's what keeps you alive. You need to focus on that. And so then the Gwen Reese relationship ties into all that. And even the show being in Cardiff instead of America or whatever, where these kind of CSI Cardiff shows really belong, these supernatural gangs fighting people, even having it in kind of this much... Uh, what's a nice way to put Cardiff? That uh, shit. Yeah, <laughs> setting. And then PC Andy, and even the whole idea that they get shit from the rift, basically. They get the flotsam from the rift they got to deal with. It all ties into that mundane crap you deal with life in life is the kind of resistor to death being final. I, I really love how, for all the scripts across the show, it actually all comes together pretty unified around these ideas, yeah. Plus, I think it does a good job of making Cardiff feel cooler than it perhaps is. I mean, we talk about it being shit, but the show does a very good job of giving Cardiff that, this sheen of interest. Like, the location, where the place where the hub is located, that big fountain and all those big buildings, like, it just... And, also, of course, those sweeping shots of the city from above, which become, like, a crucial stylistic pillar of the show. The car is driving backwards. It just, it's, it's great at giving that sheen of, um, kind of fascination and coolness to something that's quite mundane. I swear the first episode alone has at least like eight of those huge spanning aerial shots across the city. And then occasionally they'll have one where they do a really cheesy zoom in, like down the middle of it to where the characters are or whatever. It's very 2000s Uh, in a charming way. (laughs) Yeah, it's true actually. I rewatched episode one just yesterday actually because I wanted to sort of refresh it in my mind. And it's true, there is a lot of focus on the fact that it's in Cardiff and everything, which... Weirdly enough, despite Cardiff being Cardiff, it makes you want to visit there. You know, it like it does make it feel like a cooler place than it actually is. Um, but I just want to touch on for a moment. You know, when you're talking about the whole sort of death motif and all that, and mm. um, Torchwood in general, I feel like brings a more human side to sci-fi that not necessarily lacking in Doctor Who, but Doctor Who does have a a different approach to it because your protagonist is, you know as an alien and you could argue that obviously Jack is a bit more removed in a way but at the same time he's more humanised than the Doctor really is um, mostly because he's had to live through like live alongside humans in a way that the Doctor doesn't you know yeah. um, but I do feel like it's, it's such a human approach to everything you sort of see you see the sort of consequences on you know in a sense, it's more like you're looking at the aftermath, you know, so the Doctor will go in and, you know, save the day and deal with the aliens and he flies away. But you don't really get to feel the fallout of that because he's removed from it. Um, or she, rather, sorry. Um, but whereas Torchwood sort of deals with, like, okay, well, that's happened. Now, what are the consequences of this in the long term? And I thought that was a really interesting thing that Torchwood Series 1 did, where essentially you'd have an episode and... They sort of worked as self-contained stories to an extent. You could watch one of them, you know, on its own. But the sort of consequences and the issues that arose within that episode, it all sort of carries through, you know. And I'll highlight Owen just for this. Obviously, we'll talk about episodes more specifically, but I thought it was interesting how we had situation like, for example, um, when he lost Diane, uh... You know, you felt the con- I keep saying consequences, fucking hell. But you felt the sort of, um, he never got over it in a sense. You yeah. know, it, it carried through into the next episode in a very real way. And 
that episode does it come yeah it comes before combat and also combat is a sort of like culmination of how he's feeling at the time whereas so it's not truly episodic in a way you know you do have this monster of the week format but it feels more like a sort of continuous storyline because yeah. you never get unlike certain Chibnall showrun uh, <laughs> shows you do have a sort of continuing like you know something that happens to Owen in one episode you're still feeling the repercussions of it later on and you never stop feeling the repercussions of it which I thought is like really lovely and it's a sort of different take especially compared to Doctor Who because Doctor Who being what it is you kind of it's more episodic in a way because you're not sort of returning to the same location, you know, so it's a bit harder to, to have that sort of continuation because you're, you jump into all different planets and stuff and the companions will have sort of continuing storylines, but it won't be felt as strongly because, you know, you can't have, where Torchwood is sort of about the team and sort of about the team and the reactions to, you know, the monster of the week. Doctor Who feels more like it's about the monster of the week and then sort of reactions of the Doctor and the companion are sort of peripheral thing. Not always, but yeah. it, it tends it tends to, you know, fall in such a way. So you don't tend to get the sort of... It's never pervasive when you have a companion reacting to something badly in one episode and then the next episode it might still be carried through, but it's never going to be as strongly as in, like, Torchwood. Um and certainly what you tend to find in Doctor Who is if, uh, is if a situation affects a companion or the Doctor, it will usually be dealt with within the episode, you know, where you'll sort of get a scene at the end, maybe sort of wrapping up the emotional sort of uh, issues within it. And then it's not that it'll be forgotten about, but it won't be as, you know, faced head on, you know, in the later episodes, um, unless it's like sort of tie in to the overall series storyline. Whereas Torchwood, it doesn't, it doesn't resolve any of the emotional issues of each episode. It sort of leaves them so that a later episode, or even just, you know, even if it's not necessarily the focus of later episodes, it will continue through. I don't know if I explained that right. No, no, <laughs> I can't. Sort of, it's, it's like yeah. in episode six where the gang's all having fun out at camp and then suddenly Yanto starts getting all pissy about Lisa being dead and spoiling their fun yeah, which happened yeah. two days ago it's the show's not really invested in maintaining the status quo all the time like Doctor Who is you're totally right it's got a much more sequenced yeah. continuity and not only with itself with Doctor Who as well and the Sarah Jane Adventures I think it's amazing how they tie in like how the season finale goes right into a later episode in Doctor Who series three or David Tennant's hand or the TARDIS coral all these things you know, wrangling these three shows must have been an insane feat. I don't know how Russell T. Davis managed it. It would have been spread so thin. But within the show itself and to its two sister shows, yeah, it's really amazingly handled. And I agree, it's Torchwood's much easier to me and to you, as you said, to emotionally invest in because it just feels so much more carried through. Like, I'm not giving yeah. a little bit up every episode. It's all maintained. It's much, much easier to get attached to, I find. Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah. And it's more relatable in a way as well, because again, you're dealing with the sort of the mundanes of life, and it's sort of fitting this crazy, ridiculous, you know, alien-filled world around just the regular things, and even even things as small as seeing them, you know, eaten, and you know, like there is a bit in one of the episodes where Jack gets up to go to the toilet and stuff, which sounds yeah. really ridiculous, but it's things like it's little, you know, tiny little human moments that everyone sort of deals with, but. It often gets lost in a lot of like sci-fi and fantasy, you know, shows or movies. It's it's glossed over. It's never mentioned. You don't really get a sort of 
point where they're having their dinner, you know, sitting down having their dinner. And obviously it's still used in a way to sort of further the character development and further the plot. But you still get to see that. You know, I, I can't... It's hard to imagine, like, Doctor Who having the same sort of, um, you know, situation where <laughs> the Doctor sits down and goes, yep, I've made lasagna. Everyone sit down, <laughs> we're going to discuss the plot for this evening. And, like, I can't imagine that because you're sort of, sort of bouncing between, um, you know planets and aliens and monsters whereas you get to see the quieter moments in torch with the everyday life moments the you know things that are normally considered too boring but when you have a strong cast of characters and they're so distinct and you utilize those moments properly to sort of give an insight into their you know into the site uh the you know how they're feeling in that episode or just what their life is like you know I think that's really good and it's really strong and it makes everything feel so much more real um, and certainly so much more relatable to the audience. Would you all say the entire premise of the show is kind of from that in it's like dealing with the after effects of Doctor Who itself? I mean, the whole idea of the hub perception filter is based on what happened in Boomtown in Doctor Who series one. The whole idea is dealing with these after effects from the unquiet dead and Boomtown, this rift it's like the whole show is this these in-between moments or catching the crap, you know, that the parent show wouldn't deal with. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Anyone? Yes. <laughs> Sorry, I'll, I let, think I'll let someone else speak. Fucking a different way of phrasing it might be that where Doctor Who is the fantasy of kind of running away from your life, Torchwood is, or particularly from RTD's point of view as well, because he's, you know, kind of creative kind of figurehead here, it's RTD trying to grapple with the other side of that, and trying to create a vision of an actual working life of, of people who can't escape, but who nonetheless have to deal with, you know, problems and craziness, the same sort of horrible craziness you get in Doctor Who, kind of filtering down into them. And there's that, I mean, I don't want to preempt ourselves, but there is that brilliant speech in episode one about how all we get is the shit. Yeah. And that's just the big thesis statement for the show, isn't it? Like, it, it's, it's, it, yeah, basically. It's like Jack by force has to live the long way around, as Moffat would put it as well. So it's, yeah, exactly. I completely agree. If it were a Moffat show, it would have, there would have been particular focus on the slow path. If it had, if it had been a Moth show, it would have been more temporal than RTD made it. So RTD, as you say, makes it about um, about people living their lives. Uh, they live their lives, and then occasionally there are monsters that they have to kill, and they, you know they they have to try and uh, balance those two. I think with Moffat, it would have been more about how time has changed for Jack and how he has to live and cope with the world changing around him. And he understands it. It's his history. But it's not his it's not his world, it's not his path, and he's he's sort of traipsing through it, waiting for someone to come back for him that he's not even certain is gonna come back. I find the first series really keeps Jack at a distance until episode twelve, really, when he goes back to um World War Two for well, I think you have... Well, it keeps him at a distance because you have to establish Gwen and all these other characters. And I think it was the right choice from the first episode, kind of doing a riff on Rose, where it's Gwen coming into this fantastical life and we all see it through her point of view and her domestic life and all that. If you... Had, everyone who's watching Tortured Series 1 in 2006 had seen Doctor Who, you know, or nearly everyone as much to count. But... It would have felt too much like a spin-off of Doctor Who, even though it obviously is, to, I think, lead with that. So, I find with Jack, he's not really... He's always there and he's important, but he's always at an arm's distance, I find, until the episode where he goes back to where he was birthed in Doctor Who, which is to World War II. 
except he comes as a very different figure, you know, instead of as a con man, he's now, uh, he's still the sexy rogue, but he's much more of a heroic kind of figure, and that's where the real Captain... I'm getting way ahead of myself, I'm just talking about episode 12 now, <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> it works. But, yeah, he, com- he comes back, and he's the kind of figure the real Captain Jack could fall in love with, and I feel like the show had to really establish all the other characters and get the whole concept of the show going before it could go, well, what's in the head of our Captain Jack, our, you know, ostensible main character himself, and wrap around him to his first Doctor Who appearance and kind of go, okay, here the characters come a little bit full circle. And then we had to go into Doctor Who Series 3 to really get him to the point where I think Tortured Series 2 and onward could really get into his psyche more often, the way it does for the other characters. But I think he really works as an enigmatic figure. Even though we know he's from you know, shenanigans with no with Rose, not nose, God. <laughs> we, we know he's from Doctor Who and all that. I think even though it's dramatic irony and we all know who he is and where he's from, you had to keep him a bit of a mystery to the characters to establish all them. There is the flip side of that. There is the flip side of that, isn't there? Because while while we know that Jack, we saw Jack in the Empty Child in the tail end of Series 1, and we know all that, we still, at this point in the transmission, we still aren't 100% sure what exactly it was Rose did to him in reviving him, yeah. or how it was that he came to be you know, running Torchwood, which, as we last saw, was a thing in the Series 2 finale, which was his big organisation and stuff. So so there's still there's still these mysteries that, um, in, at the point of transmission, there's still these unanswered questions, even if you're for Doctor Who fans. And there's something fundamental interesting about the show that treats its parent show the stuff that all the viewers know about as the mystery that's slowly getting revealed because it's this big question mark and we think we know it all but there's still stuff that we don't know so it's able to feed in more questions and more mysteries and slowly like subvert like what we think we know about jack and what's going on with him so it kind of it kind of it's it's an advantage for tortured i think that it can treat stuff that we supposedly know as a big mystery what I find hilarious to that effect is that Doctor Who's second series goes to all that trouble of setting Torchwood up, you know, from its second episode. It's like the series arc, as RT did them, of that series. And then come Torchwood, it's all basically irrelevant because it has nothing to do with that Torchwood one. And this Torchwood we're meant to treat as like the protagonist group, not the evil group from the other show. And they're treated just like as this complete offshoot with next to nothing to do with that organisation beyond Yanto's background. I just find that really amusing, that it didn't really stitch up as connected as I see a lot of kind of connected universe shows do now. I don't see them as the hero group, the moral group. I sort of see them as the rebel group. You know, within the within the torture organisation, they're the ones who will stray from the rules and do what Jack thinks is right because he's the leader of that group specifically. I kind of think of it as a bit of something happening on multiple levels. In the same sense that in the main show, Doctor Who, Torchwood, the organisation, is like the human's crap British attempt to address aliens in a much worse and more imperialistic way than the Doctor would. And then on the next level, our Torchwood, Torchwood 3 that we get in the show, is like the the offshoot of that. It's like the an offshoot of an offshoot. It's like, and on every level, it's like we're kind of getting... The, the knockoff version of the cool, glamorous thing that might exist elsewhere. Uh, it seems like that's kind of a running theme for all of Torchwood, I think, in, in my head. It's like this idea of, like, it's, it's less than ideal. It's like, in, I mean, you know, we get in, in this, in the show, we get this idea that Torchwood 3 is just these guys, and then Torchwood, Torchwood um, 1 is just 
or two is like some guy in an office it's like the whole thing is less yeah. glamorous and amazing than it was set up to be originally and that's such a thing with Torchwood I think running theme with with that with with the guy in Glasgow I kind of get the impression that, that Torchwood 3 is like the main Torchwood it's the only real one left and the rest of them are kind of falling apart after Torchwood 1 Torchwood 4 went missing yeah hmm the, the, what you were saying, Gig, about how it's an offshoot of an offshoot, I think that dulls, and I don't mean this in a bad way, I think it's part of the idea, it dulls the imperialist nature and origin of Torchwood, you know, which it literally is. And other media gets into that more, but, you know, we always hear outside the government and beyond the police. And it's only really Gwen so much in the first series that brings them up, but the way they're so unaccountable to everyone, even as dingy and small as they are, you know, raising the questions of what right do they have? Why do they have this technology? Why aren't they using this technology? And we know part of it is because it's way beyond the show's budget for them to, like, give the technology to people or whatever. But, you know, those questions of what right do they have then what right do other entities have? In the way the team takes the devices home, the way that Fight Club riff-off episode takes the Weevils home to do all sorts of weird masculine nonsense with. And the kind of inevitability of how humans get corrupted when they're unaccountable to anything like that. I think that's all very interesting, even though as far as this branch of Torchwood, we don't really get much of that imperialist stuff, at least early on. But definitely a big theme of the organisation and the show to some degree. Also, I think by the end of the season, something that I kind of really like about this season is that by the end, it's kind of all a massive failure. Like, everything bad that happens in the season arc is it's kind of the fault of the, the, the team. They just, they fuck it up. Like, they just make a huge ass of everything and loads of people die. And it's just because they're so bad actually taking care of all this stuff that they, they're in charge of. And they got into so many scrapes. And it's kind of all their fault. And that's kind of pleasing because it doesn't end on a point of like, oh, Torchwood's a good thing. Or, oh, it's great that these guys are around. It, it doesn't sort of indulge its own fantasy. It's not sniffing its own farts. I kind of like it. It's just it's kind of bleak enough to say, well, you know, it's a huge screw up, but we're going to keep going anyway. Uh, there's something likeable about that. That's back to like what Code was saying at the start with why these characters are so watchable. It's because they're not just like in Doctor Who where they were set to being, you know, status quo. These are pretty good folks doing pretty good things every week. They're so much more watchable like that. They're, or not like that, as they are. Like that horrifying scene in combat where Gwen drugs Reese with retcon so she can confess to him that she's been cheating on him, but <laughs> she doesn't actually have to face the consequences of that. Like that's such an utterly horrid thing, but it's so... I'm so much more interested in these characters when this kind of stuff happens because it's so... All the complete, you know, um, arguments in the finale where (laughs) everyone's going wild at each other and literally shooting each other. Like, this is incredibly watchable, engaging stuff. Even... It's not not an even though they're screwing things up. It's the screwing up is the interesting stuff. It's great. I think part of the reason that works so well, especially for Torchwood, again... It's natural to compare to Doctor Who. But if you take Doctor Who as the kids' show and Torchwood as the adult show, it's sort of like... um, Obviously, Doctor Who does have moral complexity in it, but there's a sort of um, upper limit, you know, to how bad you can get in Doctor Who because uh, and it it sort of always has to have a happy ending in some way, you know, because... In a way, you can view Doctor Who as a sort of, which it originally sort of was uh, envisaged as, as uh, an educational tool almost. You know, you're you're kind of teaching kids morality, you know, through through the guise of like sci-fi and fantasy, and it works really well. And you know, having stories do that and sort of impart impart, um, 
sort of lessons and also it's, it's something that everyone can sort of learn, learn from you know the doctor's like uh, sort of approach to kindness and all this you know it's something that's good for everyone but ultimately it's like a kids show whereas uh, torture takes a sort of approach being as, as more adult it's kind of assuming almost that you already have strong morals and you can recognise that what these people are doing is quite shit you know it's not something you should replicate or look up to in a way um, and that makes it enjoyable because it's like we were watching it knowing that it's a train wreck you know and yeah. they can really in- indulge in that sort of you know these are these are a collection of fucked up human beings you know not evil but just you know they mess up and that's perfectly human and sometimes they mess up in more extreme ways than you know most regular people would but that sort of plays into the sort of fantastical nature of Torchwood and what they're dealing with whereas Doctor Who obviously it can't lean too much into that because you know you do have a sort of different demographic and your sort of its function is a bit different and a and it does act as a sort of teaching thing, so you can exactly because it's not like um, it's not like in Torchwood they ever get actively punished. I mean, they sort of do, right? Like, of course they do, but it's not it's not in the same way. Like, you know, it's not like oh they've done a bad thing. You know, now they have to directly get punishment for it. It's just a sort of snowball effect where they keep fucking up and they keep fucking up and it just keeps going on like that. So um, to the point that it culminates in the finale being about well all of your mistakes are sort of coming back to haunt you in a way. Um, but, uh, whereas Doctor Who, it's more like, you're more likely to get someone messes up, does something bad, they will face a consequence for it at some point, you know? Um, but in a way that's more like a, as a punishment, whereas, whereas in Torchwood, it's like, these are just the natural results of your actions, your bad actions, you know? Which I thought was quite interesting. And it is quite more, sort of, more of an adult take on the morality sort of argument. Which I thought was quite good. I think the facing the consequences thing uh, comes towards the end of the season, though. It, yeah. I think everybody has to has to understand the things that they've done wrong, especially Owen, by the end of it. Um, and even Jack has that moment in Captain Jack Harkness where he, you know, he, he probably shouldn't, but he feels morally bad for having taken Captain Jack Harkness's name. Um, I think there are a lot of moments where where. Because immorality, because m- morality and immorality are a massive theme of the show, and I think it is quite well explored. And but I, I think it is more adult in the sense that there's no specific punishment. There's nothing. There's not always something to take from. There's something to fix. So, to use a code word, the consequences are greater than the crime itself. I think the key is forgiveness. Like, the characters, they do very horrible things to each other, they shoot each other, but by the end of the season, it's kind of, it's kind of all been forgiven, almost. Like, you know, Jack forgives Yanto for what happens in Cyberwoman, you know, he forgives Owen for shooting him. And it's kind of, by the end of the season, they're kind of, they're back as a team again, and the hatchet is sort of buried. So, in spite of all these horrendous fuck-ups, there's sort of a possibility of them forgiving each other and kind of living with it. The big problem there, and I think a big misstep for the finale in the series in general is like I said earlier about Gwen confessing that she cheated on Reese to Reese and then retconning him I really think the finale needed a scene of her confessing it like for real it kind of rankles yeah. me that that didn't come from <laughs> yeah. I'm not I won't talk about what happens in episodes beyond the finale at all of course but I really think it would have made sense for season one to have that finality 
and then would be interested how will their relationship go in the next series. It would have it would have felt sort of like tied up that sort of loose end in a way because again I've not seen series two I don't know where anything goes but you know if you just sort of took series one as its own thing it just kind of felt like oh yeah they're sort of back to the step the you know the status quo by the end of things you know it's a bit more shaken up but ultimately that's that's what it is um, and certainly relationships have changed but they're back to being Torchwood. But then there's a sort of, sort of looming spectre of the fact that whatever's going on at home with Reese is not really, you know, Gwen's going to just revert back to this sort of conflict because also her big issue is that Reese doesn't understand and, um, you know, she feels more comfort almost being in Torchwood because it's like she's seen all this horrible stuff. Um, and she can talk about it with the team, but she can't talk about it with Reese and she loves Reese, but, you know, she just she just looks at him and she just you know doesn't know how to deal with the fact that she's keeping all this from him. So you don't really get a sort of um a this sort of a cathartic moment where she sort of admits it. at least you know some of it the the one thing at least you don't get a moment where she admits it and is finally truthful. So you're kind of like oh yeah it's back to the status quo but that includes Gwen being in a rocky uh, state with Reese and you know it it doesn't feel like. Certainly doesn't feel like a happy ending. Not that it should, because also the show did continue. But but I was watching behind the scenes stuff, and as far as I'm aware, like there was no guarantee that the show would continue. So I just feel like if there was a chance that it wouldn't, yeah. then they should have had like an extra scene just to sort of tie that up and to deal with the fact that Gwen did that. Not only did they continue, they got promoted. They got promoted consistently every series from BBC Three Series One, BBC Two Series Two, BBC One <laughs> Series Three, Stars Series Four. Big Finish Series 5. Like, that's mostly moving around the world. Up to a point. Are you sure? sure? Yeah, Big Finish is maybe maybe not so much a promotion. I think it's quite interesting how Season 1, more than all the others, uh, include such cheesy moments uh, as, you know, alongside the, what we were saying, were really great um, depictions of real life. So... Specifically in the last episode, I don't know if anybody remembers that final shot of um, the team without Jack standing next to each other like a group of superheroes and the music blaring behind them and then the final credits uh, shot kind of... comes in it's absolutely awful and season one is full of it and it's kind of it's kind of part of the charm but it doesn't it doesn't continue quite so much into season two and definitely not so much into season three the music i find fascinating because this is coming after doctor who series two where murray gold had gotten much more into uh actual strings and a lot more organic sounding music but torchwood music uh which was wasn't just murray it was uh ben foster as well ben foster It's, yeah. a lot, it's a lot of those synthetic strings without a realistic amount of reverb on them and kind of tinkly piano. I like it, but it's very much the first series of Doctor Who's vibe. Yeah, I honestly I honestly love Foster. I think his um, season three soundtrack, I know we're talking about season one, I think his season three soundtrack specifically is incredible. Portrait has a really great musical identity to it, doesn't it? Like if it's on season, even in season one. 
and it runs through the whole thing. There are constant those little stings that always kick in, like that. And stuff like stuff like that. Yes, yeah, it's, it's the harsh electric tones. And the Doctor's more Flavius theme comes in in episode two, I think it is, when the hand jar gets smashed and Jack picks up the hand. No! That's a nice little motif reference. Yeah. That kind of inter- interconnectivity between the show's music is so good. Like, we see so many of these, like, cinematic universes and stuff now can't manage cohering the different motifs and themes between films. And to do it across, you know, separate long-running series, really, really impressive stuff. I love how connected and tied together and musically, all the shows have distinct music, but they all feed into each other's music and they all reference each other's music. So I just, I love it. It's gorgeous. The visuals... If we're going from audio to visuals, um, are much shakier. So this this was one of the first. It might have even been the first BBC drama filmed with HD cameras, and they had two types of HD cameras, and they had no idea how to use them. So scenes are often lit strangely, and they're a lot of the sets often don't. There's also frame rate issues with how they did the pull down for the home releases, but yeah, it it can look unappealing at times, and also because. So much more work in the CGI since this had to be rendered in HD, whereas Doctor Who hadn't had to do that yet. So some of the CGI looks, I think, more dated than it would have otherwise, as Doctor Who was looking at the same time. I mean, a lot of the filming I really like, a lot of the shots I really like, the locations and the production design, the hub, I think, is absolutely beautiful. One of the best sets. Yeah, produ- production design is incredible. But yeah, the cameras, you can tell they're working out what they're doing. By, by Series 3, they'd got it fine, but yeah. I don't think Torture Season 1 ever had very great direction either i think um uh random shoes out of time and what was the next one combat i think those are all quite good and i think absent jack harkness is quite good but beyond that it felt a bit sloppy i think it's intensely 2000s in a way that it's people like dilbert you probably love and that that does have a charm in its own way i think that kind of that period of tv when you've got loads of stuff that looks kind of kind of cheapish but you don't you don't really think about it from that painterly perspective about how good does it look because it kind of just you just sort of accept the visual conventions of everything looking a bit like crappy and i think with torchwood i think it 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 might be ugly at points but i think that's also part of its sort of offbeat soapy charm i think neo used the term soapiness for season one don't you yeah the character relations and the drama the melodrama absolutely If, if season six were to be shot today it wouldn't feel the same. And I think that's exactly why no. I think it's the thousands uh feel to it. But they use a series 11 aspect ratio. <laughs> oh, good God. Visually, I think the way it works, you know, the fact that it, it does look a bit shit, you know, especially from our perspective, looking back on it. But it, it sort of adds to it because, I mean, again, like we covered, it's like Torchwood is sort of like dealing with, with the shit side of things when it comes yeah. to aliens and sci-fi and the sort of consequences of that. So, so have it, you know, visually sort of represent that, you know, it's a bit, you know, it's not beautiful to look at by any means, but then their lives aren't beautiful. The What they're dealing yeah. with isn't beautiful. It's a bit gritty. It's a bit mundane. So having that reflected in the visuals, you know, works really well, I think. I, I think what saves it is the hub 
gen- genuinely looks amazing, which shows yeah. they're not like yeah. this justifies that it's supposed to be shit because there's one thing that really isn't shit. There's one thing that's really, really good. So it kind of yeah. the contrast works a lot better for me knowing that the place most of the scenes are in looks good. Looks really good. Yeah. Tortured is one of those strange ones where despite me knowing that much of it is shit, I can't call it shit. I think it's honestly a really great TV show. It's got soul. Like, not to indulge the meme too much, but it's it's a case where the people who worked on it, clearly they cared about it. They put, you know, their heart and soul into this. Building sets like the hub, like production design, like the Weevil Mask, all over the place, stuff like that, and trying to work the themes into it as well. Even when it's sloppy or messy or cheesy or melodramatic, like, they're, they're still trying to do something really good and trying to make like, a real belter of a TV show, and you can constantly feel that. Even for all that it's a spin-off, it really doesn't feel calculated to me. Like, there's that weird disconnect with how it seems Doctor Who Series 2 was setting it up, which I don't think really feeds into what Torchwood actually is. Torchwood much more relies on the first series of Doctor Who with the whole character of Captain Jack than it does all the Torchwood stuff in Series 2. Then you look at something like Class, which feels to me much more targeting a certain demographic and much more calculated in a way. But Torchwood just totally feels... Well, it's because the whole original idea for it wasn't Doctor Who. It came before R2D even knew he was going to do Doctor Who. It's that Excalibur idea he had for some kind of Welsh uh, Buffy-esque supernatural team solving crime show. So you can tell a lot of these ideas have been bubbling in his head and they're just executed so uniquely. And yeah, as you say, the hearts are, the hearts are really in it and it really shows. I mean, certainly in contrast to Doctor Who, the overall tone of Torchwood is dark. It's, it's still up into those areas of the human soul and the human nature and, and human awfulness that, um, that wouldn't be our place to want Doctor Who. I wouldn't believe of playing that at 7 o'clock on a Saturday night. I mean, I don't know if it was very concrete in my head already. I've had a lot of time to think about Torture before writing it, which is always good. So the, the bass was there, a lot of it spinning off that Doctor Who episode, Boomtown. I'll tell you where they dropped the ball. <laughs> no, this is not actually that important. I just noticed that, um, you know, the in the very first episode when it's shown the sort of montage of all the team using objects that they shouldn't have, yeah. um, and Tosh has the book scanner, they use the exact same prop later on in the season to be a lockpick. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I just noticed that. I thought it was quite funny. I Maybe thought you were going uh, somewhere totally different with that scene no no it's just the reuse of prop it's not even uh, so not you, even you can head canon that tosh reprogrammed it <laughs> to do, to yeah. do exactly what she wants just like the doctor does before Neo segues into the Owen thing, which I know he's about to, can I just say, I love that Tosh's stolen alien technology is just, just to digitise a book. Like, that's just, that's yeah. so it's Tosh. So She's so cute. Susie's so doing good. creepy, playing God, you know, Frankenstein things, and Owen's doing his things. Tosh is just Rapey trying to things. read. It's beautiful, it's perfect. Yanto didn't bring anything home, but I think that, that suits him. He's, he's like a stickler for the rules. He didn't bring anything home. He brought something into the hub. Yeah, he... he uh, yeah. That, that's, yeah that's he a, had the yeah. Cyberwoman in the basement, so <laughs> he's got that covered. That's a very good point. Uh, if we're going to talk the Owen thing, um, I... Oh, dear. I'm, I'm not alone in saying this, but I think this, yeah, is probably the worst thing Russell T. <laughs> Davies has written in that it is such a misfire that it threatens to veer the show so of course not just in owen's character but in the hot because the show is so focused on sexuality and gender and all those kinds of things so we need some level of trust to invest in that but (laughs) when we get the first episode and because it's played it's not like in combat when 
Quen's manipulating Reese with a retcon, it's very clearly meant to be bad. Like the music and the acting yeah. and all that scene, this is very clearly we're going, oh shit, this is awful. But the Owen thing feels like it's meant to show Owen as an asshole, like, you know, most of the early eps are meant to do. But then it just kind of leaves off there, like that's all it was. And it wasn't, he was coercing people into having sex with him that, you know, didn't consent. They were, you know, brainwashed, drugged, all this kind of stuff. It's way too huge of a thing to include. And then... It's played for laughs. Yeah, it's it's played for laughs. And it's off, totally off kilter with Owen's characterization later to the point where, you know, I just put it out of my head because it well, syncs so poorly yeah. with what he does later that I just can't brook liking the character or enjoying yeah. other characters liking him with him, you know, effectively raping people. Well, just just look at um, obviously it's slightly different because it's in a way more extreme. Um, but look at just like Ghost Machine, just a couple of episodes later. He yeah, had, he's so he's so disturbed. Obviously, yeah. I mean it, it. It was also a murder, unfortunately, but but he was so disturbed by you know uh, that guy raping the girl, and and it's and I'm sort of, sort of sitting there like, okay, well, yeah, obviously understandably that's a that's a really disturbing thing, but it is a very strange thing to have for Owen specifically when you have in the first episode he's yeah. essentially using date rape drugs you know um, and also I, I thought that was um, it was almost like an off-putting thing for episode one you know, I, I, it didn't make me put it down but I can imagine how how it might you know make people feel that they didn't want to continue the fact that you have Owen you know doing this thing which you know horrible but then also in the same episode you have Jack drugging Gwen, you know yeah. this is the first. Um, this is the first intro- introduction of retcon and everything. So um, you know you don't really know what the team's attitude is, you know, towards it, and and that they use it sort of, you know, there's no sinister sort of use behind it. But the, the sort of very fact that you essentially have two instances in the same episode of you know a, a girl and certainly a guy in terms of Owen's uh, scene, but being drugged you know un- unknowingly being drugged which is you know it's not it's not exactly comfortable obviously Owen does take it to the more extremes but you know it is a bit worrying to see you know how easily sort of, sort of when it's contrasted against you know Owen's purposes for it it's not really comfortable to have Jack then drug Gwen you know yeah. uh, but you know that immediate horrible. disconnect with his characterization in the third episode as you said Reminds me of in the seventh episode, Greeks bearing gifts, where Captain Jack, who's, you know, the notoriously progressive 51st century, beyond the conceptions of, you know, 21st century ideas of sex and gender and sexuality, he just randomly (laughs) tells an out of nowhere transphobic (laughs) story about being super sceptical and distrustful of someone who transitioned. Friend of mine, let's call him Vincent. That was his name after all. Regular guy girlfriend, likes a sport, likes a beer, starts acting a little strange, a little distracted. Suddenly, (laughs) he disappears for a couple of months. He comes back, and we've got to start calling him Vanessa. Since then, I've always been a little nervous when a friend behaves out of character. Bizarre watching this, because it feels like an out-of-canon like outtake or something because it has has nothing to do with this character it's completely disconnected from his characterization as far back as doctor who series one just a huge misfire that you know fans it's like moffat says how doctor who and by extension you torture it or whatever other show lives in the minds of fans it lives in their headcanon because it's just so out of key with 
everything else the show is doing that what choice do you have but to reject it yeah because it just makes zero sense for his character you know in any capacity at all and it's and it's such a sort of um it's a misfire as well because not unlike the own thing but it's like you've got a show that's essentially dealing with you know issues of gender and sexuality in it and not not in a way that other shows do which i thought was quite interesting um it doesn't necessarily make a big song and dance about it you know things like tosh having a um a relationship with another woman and stuff that's it's just played completely like normally like you, you know which what i'm by which I mean it's like there's no sort of conflict in her and stuff about oh, oh, oh dear you know I'm because it's played as if this is the first time she's been with a woman but there is no like, sort of you know they don't make it a sort of coming out episode which I thought was quite yeah. good um, but it's the fact that the show sort of deals with these things that certainly shows at the time weren't dealing with and shows even today don't deal with particularly well mm-hmm. so the fact that Torchwood was so good in some aspects um, and representation in general and then it sort of um, <laughs> veers off the tracks a bit with this random transphobic joke that again has no makes no sense for the character but also makes no sense for the show and it's sort of progressive uh, approach to things at the time it was it was quite <laughs> unfortunate to say the least that that was included and that it sort of made it to the um, made it to Aaron but on that note of this 2006-2007 show outstripping shows even of today this was the first Who-universe, you know, Doctor Who-universe show to have a person of colour writing an episode with the actor for Mickey wrote the combat episode here. And Doctor Who wouldn't get that until Mallory Blackman co-wrote Rosa in 2018 with Chris Chibnall. So, I, it's it seems so ridiculous to me that in the first series of this show, you know, all these things are just happening, happening matter-of-factly, whereas Doctor Who limps yeah. along and, you know, is a drag to them and stuff. Yeah. I really, it, yeah. it holds up because it does actually feel like it's more modern than it was when it was made. Yeah. It's like, a, you know, ahead of its time, you know, and that's that's what I certainly felt like when I was dealing with sort of um, sexuality and stuff in the show. And it was it was such a fresh take, you know, because even nowadays when it comes to specifically sort of LGBT representation, maybe drop the T in terms of Torchwood, given that joke, but... Um, yeah. Uh, but in terms of sort of representation on that level, I thought, you know, the shows struggle with it so much nowadays, and you'd think that, you know, all these years on would be better at it, but it's really not. You either get no representation at all, um, representation sort of in the margins, where you sort of, it's left up to viewer interpretation, you know, and I always maintain that representation that essentially, you know, claimed representation that has wiggle room is not good representation at all. You know, it has to be definitive. You can't shy away from it. Um, Or alternatively, they have the representation, but it's done in a very stereotypical way or a character essentially becomes about their sexuality which is not a good way to handle it either whereas Torchwood it's just it's just a natural part of things you know basically everyone on the Torchwood team you know has some sort of same-sex relations you know to an extent obviously um unfortunately owns as packed up and the uh, episode one thing uh and Gwen's is portrayed and unfortunately as the sex gas alien and also, you know, there's issues with that scene in itself and the way the team reacts to it and all that stuff. But ultimately, when it sort of does come down to it, all of the team are in some way bisexual. You know, you could you could certainly say that. So 
and it, and it's never it's never something that's focused on overly much and it's never really discussed it's just it's just a simple fact you know, they are and that's natural it's normal of course it is um which is a really again like i said really refreshing take on it but it does make me really sad when you've got torchwood alongside doctor who and aaron at the same time and doctor who drops the ball so much on in terms of representation like and that that in itself makes it sort of uncomfortable in a way that torchwood is so good because um and i'm not saying doctor who's complete without completely without it but it's certainly not as prevalent and um and arguably not as well handled when the most significant character at the time was indeed Captain Jack who when he is your only character in Doctor Who who is like sort of um very obviously uh uh bisexual pansexual whatever um and he's he's so promiscuous and that in itself is fine because obviously people can be promiscuous that's not a problem but when he's your only sort of significant character who is not ostensibly straight and you're making him promiscuous and you don't have any sort of balance to that you're playing into a very age-old stereotype that anyone who is bisexual or pansexual or anything with on on that spectrum is sort of um you know is in a sense greedy or wants to sleep with everyone and that's not true whereas Torchwood also has um bisexual characters and you have got like Tosh and everything and Tosh is certainly not promiscuous but so it's sort of balanced out Jack's sort of um Jack's approach to things is balanced out by the fact that there's other characters and they don't play into the stereotypes so the fact that Doctor Who has that sort of looming issue with its representation is really um you can't really ignore it once you've seen Torchwood and worse still the fact is that Torchwood is seen as the adult show and I think it's like quite uncomfortable almost that, yeah. that this level of representation it can only be permitted in the adult show but when it comes to the kids show it, you know it's, it's almost devoid of representation and when it is there it's never necessarily overt and it's never necessarily like again like I said really uh, until we've got like characters like Vastra and Jenny and Bill um, but obviously Moffat's issues when it comes to representation mostly being lesbians is a thing in itself but the fact is, you don't really have much in Doctor Who, so it's like, is it like, is the are they unintentionally saying that these sorts of things are not appropriate for children, which is not good. You know, it's not it's not a good sort of um, and certainly Jack's um, Jack's relationships and Jack's uh, sexuality is played for laughs a lot of the time in Doctor Who. You know, him his his flirting and stuff is is played very much for laughs, whereas you compare it to sort of Torchwood and he, and he has episodes like um, Captain Jack Hartness where that is such an emotional and such a moving and such a serious episode and the romance in that is not joking you know it's you're not meant to laugh at it it's not meant to be humorous it's meant to be sad and powerful and everything um so the the contrast between the two is is very different the fact that again you only have this one character in Doctor Who and you know he's a joke half the time you know which I mean I, I don't have a problem with Jack being sort of light-hearted character in Doctor Who but but unfortunately it does have sort of Unfortunate, uh, unfortunate, unfortunate, uh, but it does have bad implications when it, when it's sort of handled in that way. And I, I wonder, was that the BBC throttling representation of Doctor Who because it's a, you know, it's a family show, you know, we can't show that, or was it Russell making that decision? Because I'd be really interested to know, like, who decided that that sort of showing that was not appropriate for kids. You know, I, I I'd think like it, to know. I think it was Moffat. I blame this all at Moffat. If, if there's a problem in in any of these shows, I think yeah. it's his feet. It's I want to lay it at. So it's always Moffat. It's always Moffat. Yeah, you're right. Let's just blame him for everything. But yeah, I think um, 
the differences between the two shows when it comes to representation are really fascinating to know. And it is strange how boundary pushing Torchwood was at the time when Doctor Who was was like you say lagging behind and in many ways Doctor Who still continu- it continues to lag behind. Phasman forever. <laughs> Shut up, I'm going to kill you. Um, but um, it, it still lags behind compared to even just what Torchwood Series 1 achieved you know which is compare like how many series we've had, we've had since that point in Doctor Who and I don't know it, it's it's really bizarre genuinely can't work it out but yeah and it's it's not like Torchwood like sort of um, reduces its representation again I don't know much beyond that of like beyond series one but as far as I'm aware even as, as it sort of got promoted up onto sort of like um, more relevant BBC channels it's not like it was you know they were phasing out representation to make it more in a sort of you know <laughs> uh not acceptable yeah. for the masses, yeah. but, it's, but it's not. You know, you know what I mean. It's not like they were sort of. Uh, it was viewed as oh, we can do whatever we want because it's on BBC Three and nobody's going to be watching it. You know, um, although obviously people did, but um, it, it was a sort of. God only knows. I wish we knew more about that because I'm really fascinated by what was going on behind the scenes and why it ended up the way it did. Because who knows? Anyway, that's my rant over. <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating. I. Yeah, it's yeah. I I hate that whole inherent like if it's not heterosexual, it's sexualized. I hate that whole thing so much, yeah. and it's so apparent not just in media and life in general. Like you get mm-hmm. you get kids, you know, toddlers that are told, "Oh, is this your boyfriend or is this your girlfriend?" And that's somehow seen as not sexualizing or not romanticizing. But you know, the people get in such panic over gay kids and trans kids and stuff. Like it's like it's different. Like, one's the default yeah. and one's normal and one's okay, but the others are spooky because they're sexualized and stuff. It's just... It's horrible. So, yeah, it's it's nice yeah. to have yeah. a show that um isn't normalizing. Yeah. And it's, it's just a shame that it was for a more adult demographic and... The, yeah, it is. You know, yeah. Because Doctor Who, obviously, is also a kid's show. It's a family show, yeah. so... I think it would have been powerful. In a way, almost more powerful if the if you had that representation there so that everyone of any age could see themselves, you know, yeah, rather than relegating it to sort of the adult show. This this is why I've got my change.org petition on a Torchwood Babies animated <laughs> spin-off going for years. You know, I'm, it's only one signature, but I feel really passionately about this. Yeah, yeah, I've signed that one. Don't you worry. Jesus. Do other men have anything to say? <laughs> Okay, I think there's something um, there's something interesting and kind of uh, amusing in how fast and loose Torture plays it with all the main characters' sexualities. It's uh, I think in a way it's you you could possibly accuse it of being a bit trashy or kind of part of the show's slightly trashy-ish aesthetic. Like you know yeah you know Gwen sort of snogging you know the sex gas alien like in the middle of the show like that's that's kind of she's never shown us she for the rest of the season she's not really shown us having particularly like same sex leanings that's just something that kind of gets chucked in and it's kind of and you have kind of characters um swapping around and stuff but it's despite that even though you could accuse it of being sort of exploitative like trying to flash its queerness off at the same time what's wrong with that like there's nothing it's not really like it's not a bad thing like it's it, it, it gives it part of its uh part of its unique flair almost and it's actually it's a nice thing to see it's not that common I'd like to mention that the, the episodes people could call trashy are written by Chibnall and Whithouse. <laughs> <That's very funny. laughs>
I do think there is something to be said about, like, for example, when it comes to Gwen and Owen's sort of same-sex, like, um, you know, or like, uh, interactions. They certainly are not in a great light. I mean, you can make the argument that Gwen wasn't necessarily in control of herself yeah. in that scene, and the way the rest of the team sort of reacts to it, going, "Oh wow, this is so sexy. Look at these," you know, yeah, that's you a, know, that's a... which is um, especially because they're operating at that point. They think that the sex gas alien kills anyone it has sex with, so yeah. they're essentially watching the precursors to Gwen having sex with it. Obviously, as that turns out, it needs men instead, but the fact that they're going, wow, this is so hot and sexy, instead of going to save her life, you know, yeah. um, is a bit uncomfortable, to say the least. And then the fact that also... Yeah, this is after yeah. they judge that voyeuristic guard for masturbating himself yeah. over, you know, the team <laughs> yeah. as well. It's clearly an intentional yeah. parallel, but it doesn't it doesn't portray the team in a good light at all. Yeah. Okay, I was just going to say, even if we're talking about sort of um, the same sex attractions being shown problematically, like even Tosh's fling with the alien is not free of that kind of that sort of uncomfortableness. Like that's very much that episode in that plotline. It's very much kind of this. She's being uh, seduced by this kind of corrupted lesbian. She's being like all kind of sucked in by kind of the evil alien with ulterior motives and seduced into this dark world. And it's it's not it's not the most um uh, kind of admirable in terms of its representation of like lesbians or women. I think it's kind of it's kind of got weird vibes to it that, that episode. Yeah, but um, about note with that episode, which. I, I get that interpretation completely um, and certainly it is quite interesting um, uh, when it comes to that but also that, that episode wasn't originally meant to be uh, Tosh with a man um, all they did was change was change it into Mary uh, so really the issues with that episode are nothing to do with sexuality um, also it's a manipulative and you know uncomfortable relationship on many levels but it's got nothing to do with the fact that they are it's a lesbian relationship the problem obviously does come into the fact that um the when you add that aspect to it then you're sort of looking at a different lens because again you do have this problem in media where um gay relationships on on any level will tend to be portrayed either negatively or there'll be you know sort of a sad or bad ending for it like you know it's very rare that you get a sort of gay relationship where there's a happy ending or there's not some sort of some issue with it um which is really unfortunate (laughs) 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 no neil i know oh no do you know what all this reminds me of um do you know in um you know in resolution with the guard who was supposedly made gay in ADR it's that yeah. isn't it like oh let's add let's make this gay to make it more progressive but it ends up casting like a, a negative pool on it because you didn't think it through enough my impression more from what code was saying about how the gender was switched was that it's not so much Whithouse is problematic but it's that gig is problematic for reading the episode in that way oh wow okay <laughs> I did not expect to be attacked like this but you know fine go ahead no, pile it on no, I, I think it's it's a completely valid criticism of it, you know. Um, I think that I would like to say that series one sort of does balance out by having something like, for example, uh, Jack and Yanto, but um, <laughs> that's yeah. a really weird approach to the relationship at all. And I have I have to get into that because I think it's one of the most hilarious things about it's yeah. on any level, right? So um, we also go from. By the end of the series, Jack and Yanto are ostensibly together, even if not sort of officially or any 
capacity. There's certainly it's made abundantly clear that that's you know that's the intention. Again, I don't know where any of the show goes afterwards, right? So don't bother mentioning it. But in terms of just series one on its own, um, we go from sort of um, biggest interaction between Jack and Yanto is the very obviously there's like flirting in the very first episode where Jack says he's he looks good in a suit or whatever, but that's that's just Jack's, and you don't really read into it too much, you know. Um, aside from you know Yanto not really being bothered by it, but um, you go on to Cyber Woman, and they also have the big sort of showdown, and uh, Yanto screwing at Jack that he's a monster, and that one day he'll be in trouble, and you know Yanto's not going to save him, and all this stuff. So, th- so that's essentially where the relationship is at, right? So they basically don't interact at all for the next few episodes. Um, the next three episodes? Yeah. And at the end, and even even in episode eight, they don't really interact until the very end. And they have this scene, end of episode eight, where essentially Yanto, just out of the blue, proposes they have stopwatch themed sex in Jack's office, right? And both of them are completely on board for this. They're, they're flirting. I and love they, the stopwatch. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's so hilarious um, uh, and the fact that they never elaborate you know what exactly they did with the stopwatch I love it anyway. I'm just imagining a Mummy on the Orient Express the timer coming up and Capaldi being like stop the clock 66 oh seconds oh Jesus um, anyway so so sort of the episode ends in that way and the implication is they do go off and they do go to Jack's office and they do have sex and all that stuff but the fact is this is completely and utterly out of the blue yeah. they have not really interacted at all for the previous episodes and certainly not to any capacity where you could believably go okay well it makes sense how they got from hating each other well not really Jack hating Yanto but it was more like Yanto fucking hating Jack's guts you know um, so it's like there's no scene or point in time where you can go well you know not even not even alluded to how they get from that point to you know still watch theme sex in Jack's office right which is really hilarious in so many levels and also the series sort of progress it's never really Jack and Yanto are never really um, brought to the forefront as such um, until like things like what is it yeah episode 12 when Owen makes a reference to to the fact that Jack and Yanto are having sex and everything, but again, you still get the the impression that it's a sort of um, it's not really a relationship. They're just sort of you know, in a sense, it's almost like a convenience thing for them. Um, and then also the, you get to the finale and they reunite, and one of the best interactions in the show, Yanto goes for the handshake, and yeah, Jack just which is like really hilarious when you have the context context of them you know they've been having sex for maybe months I don't know what the time scale is at this point and he goes for a fucking handshake which is hilarious but then also they kiss but that's that's essentially all there is for Jack and Yanto all there is so you know there is no progression there's no natural progression for any of this there's no you know none of it really makes sense it doesn't and I wonder how this would have been perceived back in the day and maybe someone paid attention enough to have an opinion on it. Torchwood ran for four series from 2006 to 2011. But after that, despite the many efforts of John Barrowman to resurrect the show on TV, it never eventuated, at least of me saying these words in 2019. However, come 2015, Torchwood did get a revival of sorts. The company Big Finish got the license to make Big Finish audio dramas, radio plays, whatever you want to call them. Basically, episodes of television but with no visuals. 
Not audiobooks with narration, but audio dramas with characters played by their own actors, interacting, sound effects, music, all that jazz. Just nothing for your eyes. While Big Finish would eventually mount what they called an actual follow-up to the show, marketed as the fifth and then the sixth series of Torchwood, composed of 12 episodes each and having series arcs and such things, most of the time they've just made audio dramas sprinkled all around the timeline of the show, with stories set in between episodes and things like that. One such story is called Broken, set during the middle of Torchwood Series 1, and it's a rather interesting story indeed. You know, there is there is an audio that was released like ten years after series yep. one that gives the um that gives the context for Yanto's development and certainly the development in relation to Jack, which is you know, Neil made me listen to it and I'm really glad I did because I listened to it chronologically, like where it would sort of go in series one and suddenly that relationship makes so much more sense because if I hadn't I'd be just kind of sitting there like utterly baffled by yeah. how they go from point A to point B with nothing in between. But also this audio, um, which if you've not listened to it, I do highly recommend it. It's great for fleshing out Yanto's character and certainly the relationship, but it completely recontextualizes everything and it makes it make sense. But the fact that you had to wait 10 years to have that, it's just, it's honestly, it's absolutely bananas. And I kind of love it because it's just so stupid, you know? Yeah. That In my first experience watching the series... When the stopwatch moment happened, I was just so completely <laughs> confounded by it that I found it, you know, yeah. quite quite hilarious. And I, yeah, I thought it was truly bizarre with <laughs> with what Yanto had been saying to me earlier. But I just rolled with it because the the actors had chemistry. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I figured oh, yeah. we hadn't seen yeah. what exactly did it. And then, as you said, you know, so many years later, um, the company Big Finish made a radio play with you know a suicidal Yanto over the early episodes of the season dealing with. Mm-hmm his girlfriend, Lisa the Cyberwoman's death, and coming to terms with himself. Um, it's like, well, in the, in the next episode, when Tosh can read people's minds in that, she sees Yanto think, there isn't an inch of me that doesn't hurt when he's, like, making the coffee or something. And then that radio play really goes into his psychology with all that. And it actually stitches together. Joseph Lidstar, the writer, does a really wonderful job of kind of hacking into the series and finding these perfect points to kind of contrive character development that'll retroactively make sense it's it's like it's like retconning he's retconning in character development to actually yeah. work yeah so i think it's a really valuable experience you had which is basically the series done better if yeah if joseph it, lidster yeah. had gotten he writes an episode in series two that's good but if he'd gotten oh. an episode in series one and it was jammed in between those two ones it would have made it work so much better i do think and it's and it's a sort of audio that would have worked uh absolutely it's like one of those ones where it doesn't really have to it doesn't rely on the fact that it's an audio format to work, if that makes sense. Yeah, it could have been TV. very easily. Yeah, it could have very, very easily been TV. And you can imagine, like, if it just between, between episodes seven and eight, which is obviously where it's best to listen to it, I personally feel, um, and where I did listen to it, if you just had an episode in between that sort of dealt with Yanto, sort of, you know, and finally sort of acknowledging the fallout from Cyberwoman, because after Cyberwoman, Yanto does really get sidelined you know the other characters get more of a focus and more of the development and you get to see sort of the the um, repercussions of some of the stuff they've dealt with where Yanto sort of he's kind of left in a point where um, obviously he is dealing with a lot of awful stuff and in episode 7 you get the moment again like uh, like we said where there's references to how much pain he's in and 
it's just never really fully acknowledged until you know this audio was made, which again, ten years after, <laughs> ridiculously long time. Um, but I do think it was, it, you know, now if you were going back and doing a rewatch or watching it for the first time, I do highly recommend you get that audio and you listen to it between episodes seven and eight because I feel like it really fleshes out Yanto in a way that the sort of show basically failed to do in a way. Um, but again, I do sort of appreciate the absolute absurdity of the Jack and Yanto relationship and how how just bizarrely it was uh, positioned within the series. But yeah. Yeah, the other radio play set during the series is much more uh, immaterial, fun, but it's com- yeah. completely unnecessary. But broken is, yeah, that, that really should have been an episode. Although, yeah, of course, it's only born fun. after the fact of us realising there should have been an episode there. Although I find it bizarre that no one seemed <laughs> yeah. to... Re- yeah, well, it's it's all as you just said, yeah. But in terms of the, that oversight there, like why wasn't there something there? I think it's not the only case in this season where it feels like the production-wise, it's a bit of a... It seems a bit hectic, like a little frantic, maybe. Like there's lots of instances where they had to kind of drastically rework something or RTD had to rewrite something or they had to edit something a lot. Or it seems like in terms of the, the level of detailed oversight that maybe would have been needed to make it really coherent across the board, like they just maybe they couldn't apply it or just like things which is too kind of crazy all over the place for it to get that kind of level of attention to detail. And that's kind of that's that's part of the charm in a way, but it also results in kind of a feeling of sloppiness in places. Yeah. Although wishing there was more, but yeah, not uh, not to comment on future series, but the sloppiness of series one is a lovely little unique thing. It's its own little treasure in yeah. a way. Well, that's good to know because the moment we're done recording, I'm starting series two. I've been waiting for it. Oh. I'm so excited. Yeah, the first five minutes are by uh, Russell T Davies as well, so that's quite a delight. Okay, I'll keep that in mind. Series two opener is honestly incredible. You will love it. Yeah, you love it more. Yeah. <laughs> oh god, now I'm just even more excited to watch it. Like I put it off because obviously podcast of it, and I don't. You know, what, I might watch it tonight. I think we're going to have to watch it. It's, yeah. it's such a great episode. Series two is fantastic. Yeah, love series two. We shouldn't get too ahead of ourselves. We need to remember that we'd all we'd all be worse off without things like Cyberwoman in our lives. Uh, right? I think we can all agree that these are classic bits of television here. <laughs> can I just can I just comment on Cyberwoman and the sort of elephant in the room with that um, costume? <laughs> the cyber okay, bikini. So, oh dear, I was um, I was watching all the behind the scenes stuff. Uh, I watched it all like last night to sort of deal with the fact that I couldn't watch series 2 until later um, and honestly it's so uncomfortable the way they talk about the, yeah. the outfit and everything yeah. and quite interestingly which which doesn't surprise uh, how, me how do they talk about it? I'm about to say <laughs> don't you oh, worry um, sorry. <laughs> don't worry um, so uh, basically the first thing you'll notice if you decide to watch the behind scenes stuff is that everyone in charge of making the costume were men and uh, no women were involved in that process at all that I could see anyway um, and Russell T Davies said that actually when they were sort of envisaging the costume they were like um, he said that all the men on the team were very insistent on making it as sexy as possible as sexy as possible and then, and then Russell was like I was just concerned like was she like too cold or something? You know, so um, so I don't necessarily blame Russell for that, but also I do blame him to the extent that he sort of approved it. You know, he 
you know, signed off on it because I think it was ridiculous. I get the idea behind it where it's sort of like um, what would a Cyroman sort of look like if you stripped away the outer layers of metal and it was just the sort of support system but it didn't have to be a cyber bikini and certainly you didn't have to have scenes where like the um, the Cyberman expert who who she unfortunately or maybe fortunately kills um, is like fondling her <laughs> when he's like, uh, di- like yeah. looking over like um, that's really uncomfortable on so many levels and the fact that this costume ever made it through to you know Aaron was is just bananas to me especially because they were like oh we want this to be really iconic we want this to be the most iconic uh, monster of Torchwood <laughs> series one um, and there was a line that really just stuck with me where uh, one of the designers for the for the costume was like uh, so also Cybermen are like a, a monster you want to put up on your wall as a poster and I can imagine that a lot of young boys out there would love a cyber babe up in the wall <laughs> and I was like, this is so for, for oh. such a for an episode that's such a sort of emotional you know uh, certainly horrific and emotional why was there such insistence and they really did insist on you know this why was such insistence on making it sexy and making it you know attractive and Russell was like oh yeah we wanted to tap into the so the older sci-fi certainly new sci-fi new sci-fi as well has this sort of like sexy android woman thing trope there was an absolute tonal Um, misunderstanding in every way in that episode yeah yeah, and Russell was like, we really want to tap into that, I think. But he was failing to recognise the fact that this that trope in itself is just so shit on so many levels. Yeah. And it's not a good thing. It's not something you want to carry through into your show. Especially, again, it's like a show that, you, that on other aspects, seems quite progressive. And then they just, I don't know, they just sort of go back on themselves so quickly. Well, I say that, mind you, this is episode four, and given that we're coming off the back of, in terms of like the sex gas alien and you know the issues in episode one, but but still, it, it is so it's so bad, and they they want they constantly stress the idea that they want the cyber woman to be iconic. She is a, she is something that you do not want to be iconic about your show. You want people to forget about it. And I think there is an extra issue um, when it comes to sort of race, you know, and the episode, the fact that. The, the person being sexualized and essentially sexualized but in a sort of horrific and brutalized way as a black woman that's that in itself has so many issues associated with it you know it's something that is that you know has so much historical context that just makes it uncomfortable on another level you know so everything about cyber women about the design was just bad it was just yeah, horrifically bad it's Obviously, this had much less adverse effects, but even as far as, you know, the golden Stephen Moffat, Brian Minchin, Age of Doctor Who, when, when there's just no women in the room, you're going to constantly get, you know, these things falling through the cracks because you can be the best yeah. writer in the world, but if you're a man, you're a man and you think like a man. And yeah. you, you, this this is why it's so important to have different types of people in, in these rooms, in these tone meetings, in these writer rooms and things. And yeah, yeah. It's, that, that whole episode, like Morph said, and like you... We're illustrating their code. It's just such a tonal whiplash and misfire with the bizarre sexualization, and then the the body horror is good, and then the costume horror is so awful and objectifying and bizarre. And then we have barbecue sauce being squirted around, and we have a pterodactyl <laughs> attacking a cyberwoman. It's just what the fuck am I watching? It's a truly it's like, bizarre experience. 
yeah, like the solution to that episode, you know, with the barbecue sauce and the pterodactyl, it's like, it's almost something you should be laughing at. But in the context of the episode, it's not, me- it's meant to be horrific. Yeah. It's meant to be traumatizing. Because also Yanto's like, you know, in the state he is. So you're like, you're caught between like laughing at the absurdity of what's going on, but also going, you know, you know, in terms of in universe, this is, this is not a funny thing at all. And especially, I mean, when you do and sit and think about it, seeing someone ripped apart by a pterodactyl isn't exactly a funny thing, but just the, just the idea behind it. Like, honestly, it's, it's so bizarre and it does not surprise me for one second that it's a Chibnall episode. It tries to have its cake and eat it. You know, it tries to be very, this is a serious, gritty, intense drama of Ianto's conflict with the team members. And then it culminates with the other team members just kind of pumping shotguns into Lisa over and over. And it's so, it's so, it kind of, it's so exploitation. It's so, like, flashy and sort of, like, gruesome and all gory. And it, it's so, it's so, it's kind of childish in a way. Like, it's just kind of very teenage hormones, kind of, like, oh, make everything just kind of really extreme and severe. And, and like that bit with the pterodactyl the whole bit where um, it's attacking her and the anto's going up in the lift and he's like no on the lift it is so unintentionally funny and it just it's just it's kind of it's annoying because it makes it almost a mockery of what he's going through which is really annoying yeah and um which is another reason i will you know talk up that audio because it sort of deals with it in a more realistic way you know it, it kind of Without the sort of context of the pterodactyl and the barbecue sauce, it does, you know, tap in, like um, tap into the sort of emotional aspect of it in a much more, you know, believable and non-humorous way. But it's quite interesting you mentioned the sort of idea that it's a teenage hormone sort of being ridiculous uh, sort of thing because Torchwood sort of suffers from that in series one, I feel, again. And I've been reassured that it doesn't so much, you know, lean into this later on, but Certainly the first few few episodes, like the first maybe half of uh, series one has this issue where like there's there's a lot of sort of swearing and sex and all of this and it's kind of like, um, you know, they're really leaning into the adult themes because I think they wanted to differentiate themselves from Doctor Who and go, you know, we're not just regular Doctor Who, we're Doctor Who that can say fuck, you know, and like that's, that's fine, but it, but there is a point where you sort of like it's too much. You know, it's too much and it, it becomes, you can't really take it seriously. You know, it's like having, like having the sex gas alien be your second episode, like, were you trying to scare off all your viewers? You know, by some miracle it, it didn't, you know, and people, people yeah. kept up and kept watching it. But, but the way going from the issues in episode one straight into whatever the mess set is, uh, <laughs> sex gas episode was, you know, that's, are. It did work, and it stuck in people's minds, and people enjoyed it. And, and I think it was because it wasn't targeting people who love Doctor Who so much as it was targeting yeah. the British public. That was why it was on BBC Three, and it was why it was um, broadcast for young adults and stuff. It was it was marketed in such a way that those episodes worked. <clears throat> so day one wasn't an issue, whereas I think for a lot of Doctor Who fans, it probably was. Yeah, it was also worth noting that the first two episodes and the last two episodes were double build. So the premiere day, yeah. you got everything changes in day one back to back. Yeah, that definitely would have helped. Yeah, because I feel like you had to wait a week <laughs> to see the sex gas alien. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I you would have just quit. <laughs> well, yeah. 
Yeah, you're excitedly waiting for the second episode of Torchwood, this brand new show, and it's, um, yep, sex gas. I don't think that'd be a great idea, whereas, but it does obviously pick up later on, like, series one doesn't stay weird. The only thing that screwed up was out, out, oh, what's it called, out of time had that Christmassy stuff, because that was originally meant to yeah. air at Christmas if they'd all done one per week, but instead we got combat at Christmas, which uh, made a lot less sense, <laughs> yeah. but uh, yeah. a small price to pay. Yeah, it's not too bad. I don't think people really mind uh, having the Christmassy stuff. Well, it's called Out of Time. It kind of works, doesn't it? Absolutely, (laughs) yeah. The Christmas themes themselves are out of time, so... Um, But yeah. It's a shame we never got a Christmas special uh, for Torchwood, like a proper one. Because we had Doctor Who the Runaway Bride intersected in with this series, but... Yeah. Perhaps one day. What would Torchwood have done at Christmas? I, I'm sure they could have done some ridiculous take on it. It probably, I mean, you can't really, like, because Doctor Who already had one. Would you just air it right after? It might be a bit much. So Jack would take the team out for a Christmas dinner. It was, it's, a, it's a work dinner. And then beyond that, I have no it idea. Have, yeah. It could have had good character moments, you know, because, you know, Christmas is seen as a sort of, you know, bringing everyone together sort of thing. So it's like Jack decides to have a bonding time. Or even even if you don't have something like that over, it could have been just been like the characters sort of buying gifts for each other and like um, sort of them sort of working, working out how everyone else, uh, what everyone else sort of likes, you know. I don't know. It, it could have been interesting from a sort of character standpoint. I don't know what they would do for a plot, though, if they made it character. Uh, Christmas themed. I'm sure they'd work something out though. You could do an Easter special to commemorate Jack coming back from the dead like Jesus. That might work. <laughs> it writes itself. <laughs> oh god. Sp- speaking of Jack coming back from the dead, um, this I guess this would have played differently to you, Code, because <coughs> you'd seen Doctor Who series three first. But that was a, a surprise when we learned he was immortal. That was a huge shock, and everything changes, and that really oh, upended yeah. how the show was going to work because um, it had been doing a much more usual structure you know of you know the very joseph campbell hero's journey thing of the hero you know getting the call and then seeing into the new world and then refusing it and she gets a mind wipe and then coming back and then it was subverted in two ways in how Susie was so utterly fucked up and saying no this you know mirror world we're close to is really crazy and it fucks your mind up and it's too much to handle and now i'm a murderer and i'm gonna murder you and just wait a second as I take up my gun, I'm being polite as I reach my handbag and all that kind of nonsense. <laughs> and then also that Jack, who's like our kind of... I mean, he's not our protagonist, but he's kind of our main character, gets shot in the fucking head in the first episode. I remember reeling yeah. at that. What the hell is happening? And then he just comes back. It's this amazing moment. But of course, Doctor Who, you know, shows it all in its third series, which yeah. of course it has too. But that was a nice little that's, moment of watching it in sequence yeah, back in the day. That's, that's quite interesting because um, I never really thought about it, the fact that you, you don't find out, you know, Jack's immortality, you know, um, until series three. Uh, so that's actually quite fascinating. That the, Now that I have the sort of context that the episode ended in that way and, you know, it would have been a shocking moment. I mean, you sort oh, of... It was amazing. And in a sense, like the Jack, Jack is uh, sort of like a doctor figure, you know, yeah. not you know, like a sort of more morally questionable doctor figure. So I think it's also interesting. Um, <coughs> more interesting doctor. 
but having him be immortal as well um, sort of plays into that even more because the Doctor is, you know, to an extent immortal, so, or at least he can come back from the dead, so to have uh, Jack parallel that you know, you you sort of very easily make comparisons between Jack and the Doctor and where they, you know, differ and all that stuff, and I think that's obviously in a sense that's the function that Jack has in Torchwood, he is this mysterious figure from God knows where and he's immortal and he wears a big coat and everything just like Ten Um, so having that sort of um, added dimension was, was probably a good idea and it certainly adds you know more depth to Jack and, and the comparisons drawn between the two in season one of is fantastic and then it comes into um, it, it, that comes back into Doctor Who obviously for season three and for series three and you understand that he then becomes the companion again he, he takes the back seat and lets the Doctor you know um, have the take the reins and whatever, and it's really interesting to see him not the leader anymore. Like he yeah. quite willingly lets somebody else take charge because he believes that that's the Doctor's automatic role. But when he's with Torchwood, when he's with his team, he feels like he has to play that role. Well, it's funny you say that. I mean, this is like really little things in a way, but it's quite interesting contrasting Torchwood Jack with Doctor Who Jack because you're going off like immediately you're going off the back of um, series one into like the Utopia like sort of three-parter and the differences between them there are you know sometimes they're a little bit subtler um like for example in Torchwood series one he tends to make a lot of rash decisions and he's more like he's a sort of shoot to kill type um and often he won't back down from making the really tough decisions and making sort of rash decisions and stuff if i kill you does she live but you can't jack because look at me I'm the last thing left of Gwen Cooper. Can't you see it? Just the smallest bit of her. Not one bit. Not one bit. Should... <laughs> Love that moment. Not one bit. Not one bit. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. It was great. Um, but it's like sort of he's got a very different attitude to death. And then you look at in Utopia when when they're being chased by the future kind, I think that's their name, and he's like he's about to shoot them and the doctor like shouts at him no and Jack obviously annoyed by it, but he immediately, you know, you know, stops himself. So which is quite interesting, you have that sort of um, contrast where often and uh, Torture Series 1, aside from maybe the like countryside and stuff, he was like talked down from the edge. Um, he is very much like, because he is a leader, it's sort of like his decisions sort of overrule the rest of the team. And yes, they can sort of maybe convince him not to make uh, these uh, big decisions necessarily, or when it comes to like murder, I guess. Uh, ultimately, his, he has the final say. Whereas he sort of, again, like, say, steps back and becomes the sort of lets the doctor take over and uh, also it, like, this is a really really tiny character moment I just thought was quite interesting even when the, when they're in the um, room with the master uh, spoilers for Utopia <laughs> when they're in the room with the master and the doctor starts taking his coat off I thought it was really um, oh no um, I thought it was really interesting how Jack just automatically helps him out his coat and like sort of folds it over his ar- over his arm like a sort of Yanto move, which I thought yeah. was just interesting. That's a good observation. Um, yeah, like, but it's it's such a tiny moment; it's so easy to miss. But I just thought it was like he essentially fulfills a Yanto role in that moment. Yeah, yeah I think um, how you did it, going from End of Days right into the Doctor Who series three finales, uh, I. Th- I think that's absolutely how it's meant to work 
because not only does yeah. End of Days literally lead right into Utopia, Utopia starts like a few seconds after it in the story, but mm-hmm. th- so much of the clo- End of Days had some... Cl- well, we were just saying it didn't have the closure for Gwen and Reese it should have had, but it had general closure for the team in terms of coming mm-hmm. to... T- oh, did it even? Because they all left wondering where Jack went. <laughs> well, anyway, yeah. Doctor Who Series 3 finale gives a lot of closure to Jack. We finally focus back in on Jack. And, you know, he gets his wish, he's with the Doctor again, and the Doctor's a massive dick to him, which some of us find hilarious, some of us are quite offended by. But the Doctor can't stand Jack, and Jack deals with it. You know, he goes on... Well, it's not really an adventure, it's torture. It's a really shitty situation (laughs) for Jack. But he's with the Doctor again. And at the end of it, when it's all finished and everything's back to normal and, you know, the good guys won, Jack reasserts that his place is with Torchwood. He doesn't need the Doctor anymore. He wants to be with his team. He's worked through all this stuff in his head, you know, and we've really come to a close on this part of the character. And then not only that, but we get this huge pull-out in that we get the big implication that he ends up being the face of Bo, you know, from Doctor Who, this crazy alien so far flung in the future that, you know, just wouldn't die until one day. It just finally did after giving the Doctor a cryptic message from a friend or whatever. It's just this truly bizarre completely Russell T Davies absolutely alien yeah. move to suggest is far in Jack's future and I don't feel it handicaps the character's development in any way because it's we know it's literal billions and billions of years in the future it's yeah. just this utterly bizarre ending that I think adds to his mystique I don't think it takes anything away I just makes us go what the hell is this character's journey it's so fascinating I want yeah. to watch more and I think it's fascinating that obviously Jack doesn't have the context for the face of Bo or he doesn't understand the significance yeah. of saying that because I feel like um, part of his sort of conflict as well, obviously like in Utopia we also get the moment where he essentially gets, finally gets the chance to confront the Doctor and ask what's up with him and why can't he die and can the Doctor fix it and all this stuff and obviously you know, as it turns out, the Doctor can't do anything. It's just how he has to be now. He has to live with that. Um, and that also helps him sort of reassess his own life and how he feels about the Doctor and stuff because probably the biggest sort of thing pushing him on to find the Doctor and reunite with him is ultimately that he wants answers. He wants to even be be fixed in a way. Um, so... So to have that final, sorry, I can't, I can't do anything. I can't change this. You just are this way now um, so that helps him get over the doctor because he realises you know why am I chasing after this man who you know you know doesn't exactly care about me because he abandoned me and all this stuff and he can't help me so I might as well go and be with the people that I really care about and who are there for me and all this but I think it's interesting when it comes to the face of bull thing because he doesn't he doesn't understand the significance of him saying oh yeah they called me the face of bull because he's never met the face of bull and he doesn't know certainly um what the face of Bo sort of means to the Doctor in a way um, so but I think it's, it, it adds a sort of different dimension because Jack doesn't have this sort of conflict within himself and I think as in series one I think Torchwood where he has this sort of line he says he's he's wondering like was I am, you know, am I being kept alive for something you know he, he can work out if, if he has a sort of purpose was he brought back to fulfil some great reason oh I think it's in the finale actually I think when he's talking about Abaddon he's like yeah. oh yeah was this the moment that I was brought back for and obviously clearly it wasn't because he doesn't actually die after that I'm not like if, if you're supposing that he was brought, brought back for a reason um, 
But there's a sort of implication, right? Because the, the Professor Yana thing, or you know, you are not alone, um, is essentially his dying words, face of those dying words. So it's kind of like, almost if you want to look at it in this way, if you sort of believe in that sort of idea of destiny and all this stuff, you could almost view it in a sense that that was what Jack was brought back for and some sort of mystical, you know, um, forces, <laughs> forces beyond your comprehension. Sort of. <laughs> <laughs> um, and obviously like Rose wouldn't be consciously doing it for that reason but if you're supposing that the universe works in mysterious ways and ways beyond um, our understanding um, it could almost be that the imparting that knowledge and making the Doctor come to that realisation not, not that it was really not that it really contributed anything to the story it's not like the master reveal wouldn't have happened <laughs> without the the Yana realisation but you know whatevs well, <laughs> who no, knows the, the way I like to take it isn't so much you are not alone Jack's final words as the utility in the Doctor Who story this is a a wankerish reading I'm aware but I much more like to take it that <laughs> you know the whole tortured thing is so much about you know existential uh, and loneliness and the complete finality of death. I think there's a lot of beauty to Jack's final words being, you yeah, are not alone. Yeah. You know, he's lived for so long and seen so many people die and he's struggled so yeah. much with, you know, re- retaining his humanity. But at the end, the last thing he, you know, s- says is, you are not alone. I mean, it's it has direct plot no. <laughs> things for the Doctor, but I think it's a very nice kind of thematic statement for Jack to sign yeah. off on, even though well, I'm sure that wasn't intended. That- yeah, if you consider, well, you could argue that it was. I mean, maybe maybe that was like obviously, you know, in terms of that was the intention later on. But it was like if you kind of take that episode on its own um, and take that scene on its own and that death on its own, then if you ignore how it was eventually used, um, and even if you don't like that, it can be multiple things. But if you take that scene on its own, that is really the 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 reading of it that you sort of come away with it's it's instead of it being a sort of i'm saying this for plot reasons it's more like i'm saying this for sort of more profound sort of um uh sort of reassuring you that even though you the doctor is a sort of immortal figure and does deal with this loneliness and ultimately everyone leaves um and everyone you know like you know everyone's lost in the end it doesn't matter because when it comes down to it, he's he's never truly alone, you know, um, mm. in a sense. And he is a sort of, in a sense, the universe is always there and he will always meet new people and, you know. So, and, and coming from the, from the perspective of another, of another immortal who has dealt with all these issues and loneliness and losing everyone, it's more profound than it was just... and then, then rather than a human companion going, oh, don't worry, Doctor, you're never alone. Yeah, no, you're right. It does have a certain weight to it. Yeah, absolutely. It's much more validating. If we're going to hook, in terms of finales, to hook back in a Torchwood's first finale instead of Doctor Who's third one, um, (laughs) the whole... I think a lot of the issues with End of Days is that it goes to Doctor Who. This is a too big of issue to kind of sit comfortably in Torchwood. I mean, in terms of budget alone, they... They could not realise their idea for this episode at all. We got like one Roman guy in jail. Uh, <laughs> you know, the- got a few plague patients and hazmat suits. Yeah, there, there wasn't much else to communicate what they were doing, which really boxed it in weirdly. They're normally much better at doing lo-fi stories that play to their strengths. And then Abaddon, like I'm not going to rag on his CGI. Like this was 2006, and there weren't many people working on it. But it's just it's not playing to what 
I think the show is particularly good at. And that sequence of Jack just screaming and his life force <laughs> coming out of him. And yeah. then he, oh, is Jack dead for real? And we, we, we all know, of course, he's not. We've known that the whole time. And then he comes back after three days. You know, it's yeah. it's Christian as fuck, man. <laughs> it's And it's Lovecraftian as fuck with the bat. And, like, it's all... <laughs> <laughs> Why is the episode to I, doing these things? I thought that no, I like Jack screaming in the field. So if you go back and rewatch it, I th- I was sitting there thinking, did they forget to add the CGI? <laughs> now the sort of um, the the magical beam going from him to Abaddon, it sort of only appears halfway through. Um, as if they sort of like forgot it in the first half because Jack's on his knees, like sort of screaming and like he's puffing his chest out as if there wasn't to be CGI there but it only comes in later so it just it's like and it's a really extended scene he does not have to be screaming you know for so long or you know it, it just feels really uncomfortable to watch almost because it's like here's John Barrowman acting his heart out but it's like the it's like the VFX team sort of went oh shit we were meant to be adding something into this scene you know halfway through it oh it's it's so cheesy and sort of bad I think, I don't know how intentional this was, and I feel like it wasn't, but I always thought, so when I was looking at Abaddon and everything, thinking about it, and the, the concept of a creature chained beneath, and also the idea of, um, I think there was either a line, it was either in the episode or when I was reading the Torchwood website, you know, with all the, like, sort of notes, like, yeah. in-universe notes, there is, there's a reference to, could there possibly be more, like, Abaddon out there? And I was just sitting there the entire time thinking, this Satan pet, like, we are talking about... That's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Then they say he's, like, the son of the beast or something. I think it's explicitly meant to be a reference to Satan pet. Very much. Okay. Great, because I, I, like, I wasn't sure, like, I've only seen the finale once, and I, I, I was thinking about it afterwards and reading all this stuff, and I was thinking to myself, was there meant to be a connection here? Because it's like, the similarities are, are so clear, like a giant demonic monster and sort of, sort of biblical themes and all this. So, but yeah, I feel vindicated now that I wasn't just making that up out of nowhere. But yeah. You're right, it's just such an odd direction for the finale to yeah. take. I don't know what I thought it's, ripping yeah, off the Satan pit was the way to go. Especially because Torchwood is like, Kind of the whole point of Torchwood is you're dealing with more smaller scale human things. Yeah. Suddenly the finale, you know, takes you swerves into like dealing with something that the doctor, you know, you would expect to to have uh, to come in and fix. And especially when it's something so large scale, it's kind of like in a way you're almost sort of like, why did the doctor not know about this or like notice it or bring it up or mention it or just be aware that at some point there was a giant creature reminiscent of the beast in the Satan pit stomping about Cardiff. And also like um from his perspective he might be looking back on it and going, Well that's a sort of event that happened in time, this it's just a thing that happened in history but you would assume that in some way like it'd be something he'd be aware of because it just feels like something the Doctor should be dealing with and probably feels that way also because we have the Satan Pit to compare it to and it was kind of um, when you're dealing with sort of ridiculous impossible situations like a giant demon stomping through Cardiff it's kind of like you expect something larger than life to to deal with it and I suppose suppose it made sense the way Jack did deal with it It but it was kind of um, it's kind of silly because they're like oh Abaddon he was it like he eats life or he brings death or some nonsense you know well good thing we have an immortal on our team who can deal with this in the most convenient way possible you know um it's Chibnall script yeah what you say there I think applies to the Doctor Who finale we were just talking about as well and that they go too abstracted in some ways that really 
it they're not anchored to human emotion anymore and so we're just so aware we're watching yeah. like sci-fi shit like when the whole a lot of the ten and jack uh, anxiety tension stuff i think works fine but the idea that 10 well 9 the ninth doctor just left jack at the end of series 1 cuz uh he's a he's a fixed point in time he's a weird thing in time the tardis doesn't like him it's like what what are we mapping this onto emotion wise this is just utter sci-fi nonsense and it's so weird to hear these lines concerning these characters we love so much because shouldn't this be grounded in their relationship like their emotions like this would be much better if yeah. it was 10 hating the baggage from the parting of the ways or 10 hating Torchwood which they did touch on in the episode if they ranked if they'd done much more of that and 10 couldn't stand him because he abhorred Torchwood so much and that was the sole reason that would have worked much better although that wouldn't explain why the ninth doctor left yeah. him but well yeah um I feel like the doctor especially um before he sort of has the full sort of Certainly until Capaldi era, he's very much a sort of, he runs away from things, you know, <laughs> runs away from stuff. So um, I think it would have worked perfectly if they'd played it as guilt, because ultimately the Doctor knows what it is to be immortal, you know, he knows what it is to be immortal and to be the loneliness and the suffering that comes with that. So if he sort of runs away because he's, he's sort of terrified, he's essentially, in a sense, through his actions, obviously it was Rose, but it only culminated in such a way because of him. Um, if it was a sense of like through his actions, Jack had become something that he sort of the Doctor he himself sort of hates being in a way. You know, you can imagine how that guilt would would force him to run because he's like, I don't like how am I meant to help Jack through this, and how am I help, um, meant to help Jack deal with this when I don't even know how to deal with it myself. You know, if they played it like that instead of the disgust route, that would work much better, I think, and it would um, yeah would have added a depth to it as well because because then there's a sort of like it's the understanding, you know, the shared understanding they have being immortal, but instead it was like, oh, you're disgusting to look at, it's, Jack. It's- Whereas the way they did play it made me much more sympathetic with John in Out of Time when he um when he kills himself in the car. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. Yeah. That 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 that, that Doctor Who finale um, makes me think of euthanasia a lot and being pro euthanasia, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, how Out of Time handled, especially with how yeah. death is kind of figured as the complete ultimate end in Torchwood as well. Um, yeah, because there's nothing after, like, yeah. the heap going, yeah, there's nothing, you know, in this this assertion that, I mean, like, you get Susie's line saying life is all, you know, so Torchwood certainly does take a sort of different stance to it, so. Is Out of Time the first episode of Torchwood that you can actually point to and say, this is concretely, like, very good, there aren't any gaping flaws here? I, th- I think it seems like the first one you can kind of go, okay, this is like, this is, this isn't just kind of a charmingly awkward and flawed show. This is actually like, this is actually really good. Probably. Maybe. I, I think. I, really, I stand small worlds very Oh, high. I forgot small, I forgot you, you love small worlds, don't you? I forgot about that one. What about Countryside? Countryside's really good, but I find it's a bit, um, uh, how to, it's, all those horror films in the 2000s, um, were doing stuff like this and I, uh, yeah. Maybe this isn't a flaw, but the tone of it is very kind of... I don't mean actually exploitative, but like exploitation film in a lot of way. It, yeah. it, it's like a little bit camp how horror and gory it goes. And I'm not sure how much of that is intentional. I think it works. I'm not sure how much was meant. If you, if you listen to the commentary, this might have been in the Declassified. You watched Code as well. I know that the director and John Barrowman 
improvising a lot of the final like climactic fight scene in there just making it as over the top as possible and then in the edit um julie gardner and russell t davis were like what the hell have they filmed here like yeah yeah <laughs> it's not necessarily yeah. a bad thing but it's a very over the top episode take of it yeah. as well um where it wasn't like slowed down because the the one that aired was quite different from what they intended and they apparently russell and julie wanted um wanted a sort of instead of being jack being sort of angry and sort of screaming and you know you know, going in guns blazing, they wanted a more sort of stealth approach, but it was more like instead of him being angry and upset, he would go in sort of, um, like sort of emotionally disconnected, but, you know, stealthy sort of, you know, that sort of thing. I, I don't really know which one I would have preferred. I, I feel like Countryside is an interesting episode because I, I really enjoyed it. Um, it didn't really feel like Chibnall, but, um, I'm currently nursing an idea that maybe Chibnall is, because Chibnall's not actually always bad um he hasn't series 11 um, but we know with broadchurch and i'm not i've not seen broadchurch i don't know if he, there is criticisms to be made there but on the whole no, it seems to be well received uh, <laughs> yeah, um, um, yeah 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 <laughs> i don't know <laughs> That's what i feel I'll like say. he can be really and when you look at things like power of three and um what's the dinosaurs yeah, on a spaceship yeah, on a spaceship, yeah. Um, people yeah People generally think to themselves that there are, there are redeeming moments in the episode. For example, Power Three, like the first half of it, of a sort, where you're dealing with sort of the more human stuff. And Chibnall's pretty good at that. I mean, I'm not saying he's perfect or anything, but he does seem to deal with human stuff pretty well. I feel like he's probably better when he's dealing with characters that are pre-established um, and he's got a sort of template to work off of. But then again, Broadchurch exists, and again, I don't know how I that th- goes. I, I've all, never seen it. A, a huge but, um, factor in this is he wanted to work on Tortured and he wanted to make Broadchurch whereas Doctor Who was basically foisted onto him and it took so much convincing and years yeah. you know Moffat had to there was a gap year and he had to do series 10 Doctor was very hard to get onto him and then there's a lot of issues with his motivations and his schemes and what he's doing with Doctor Who that mm-hmm. go a long way to contextualise why series 11 is the way it is but by no means is everything Chibnall writes necessarily yeah. terrible or void of emotion or depth or themes? He has an episode in series two that is really, really, really good and has a lot of heart yeah. and soul to it. So, yeah, I I see Chibnall, you know, I can sleep. I don't have to think real shit. I don't have to scream. Chibnall's name yeah. is not necessarily an alarm bell. But... I think with... Yeah. I think with Countryside... As much as that's kind of a fairly um, thematically slender sort of horror kind of bit of bit of gore, bit of kind of slash fest, I think um, something that I think is a bit under-remarked with Countryside is that there's actually what I think is quite a good and subtle bit of theming to it, which might have been completely unintentional on Chibnall's end. But the fact that they make that episode the one where Gwen chooses to start cheating on Reese with Owen, yes. and the way that that's framed after um, she gets that revelation from the cannibals about why they did it, you know, she asks and he's just like well it made me happy yeah and it's and that horror that they would do something just for just for shits and giggles just for the sheer pleasure of it it's kind of and that that kind of it's kind of like that breaks something in her and it kind of like that opens up this very sort of dark sort of she's kind of she's over the line at that point when she's found out about something so horrific and in the episode they're like well i need someone to share it with so i'm gonna i'm gonna shag in but i think but beneath that more deeply than that she is also doing something that makes her happy even though it hurts someone else so reese in this case 
it's kind of like she's taking that step into the 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 the, the selfish kind of pleasure seeking like the cannibals are in a way also i'm not saying she's yeah. taking moral cues from the cannibals as nilsa <laughs> yeah. would put it but it's i think there's a link there i think it's it's that episode's a bit cleverer for me than i and think most people could credit for i think that's because to- gwen's whole arc across the thing is jack you know brings her onto the team partly because she's a humanizing force you know, in, in day one, she says, none of you have boyfriends or girlfriends. I'm the only one with a partner. And they kind of go, oh, you'll understand. And that whole thing, Jack keeps reasserting to her. Even when he tears her away from dinner with Reese in combat, I think. And he yells, sit the fuck down. And she goes, oh. And she goes off with him anyway. Gwen's arc is trying to balance, you know, how human she is. Because that's why that's why she's hide. And she knows that's her strength. But the job of Torchwood, like Susie says in the first episode, is so wearying and it makes you so fatalistic and it pushes them to very hedonistic in some ways as well that yeah as you say that reading of countryside is really really good and i think that absolutely opens up why she starts turning in that way jack didn't want it to turn this is her morality because in a way she's seen she's seen the worst that humanity can get and I think, I think when you've sort of seen that, it becomes a lot easier to justify yourself doing things like, for example, cheating on Reese and stuff, because she's like, you know what? In the grand scheme of things, this this does make me happy, but also it's not exactly the worst that humanity can ever do. And as a sort of the idea that the tra- the trauma and dealing with it is what pushes her towards Owen. But I think it's a as an interest, and I, and I do agree with that take that sort of countryside is a sort of breaking point almost for Gwen, you know, and after that it's a sort of steep slope into questionable moral decisions, you know, um, but that but that's good, and, and I do, and again, I don't know, who knows if Chibnall intended it to be that way, or, or if it was just pure coincidence, but I thought it was, it was really good, you know, and she sort of, she sort of understood herself better through the cannibals. Which is <laughs> a statement. It's. I'm gonna flip to a completely different episode here. Um, of course. Some another episode that's good, although it has a huge issue in the end. Um, Random shoes, which is very much. How did I know you were gonna say that? <laughs> it's 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 Torchwood's take on you know a, a Doctor Light episode. It's it's a fa- it's Love and Monsters. It's very clearly very influenced from Love and Monsters. You know, and it's all this wonder of a mundane life, the little story of Eugene. And Eugene being betrayed by his friends, I I love that as a mirror um, to, you know, something like Love and Monsters, where it's the strength of friends and, like, the communal power of friendship and people banding together. And then, of course, the torch would take on that as well. People are quite shitty and people sell each other out and people betray each other. And Eugene being betrayed by his friends hurts so much. But Okay, you, you go first. You go first. Um, I think there is a very obvious criticism to be made of it, the fact that Eugene and his attitude and how he acts towards Gwen is portrayed in any way positively, or that we should be, you know, find it heartwarming that he is obsessive over Jen, uh, Jen? <laughs> Gwen. <laughs> um, uh, I think it is quite uncomfortable, and I think it is uncomfortable, especially because it's like, okay, well, he's dead and he's a ghost, but he's getting really close to her, and he's, you know, sleeping next to her in her bed and stuff, and and we're meant to like end the episode going, yeah, Eugene was just a sweet boy, you know, he he didn't mean anything bad, you know, he was just a sweet boy who had a shit life, you know. Yeah, this this but is I, I, yeah. I, this totally it's, ties it's into why I think the ending is god awful, and it's it's a lot of it is 
um, it's like some of our problems with End of Days in that it doesn't follow up on the nuances that, you know, we're putting trust in the episode. Like, obviously, what Eugene's doing is creepy. Like, he's... Well, he's, it's funny because he's ghosting it, but it's really the opposite of ghosting because he's giving it too much attention. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. but anyway, so we'd expect this to come to somewhere, even though it's being played as kind of sweet with a tone. You know, we trust Torture to normally, you know, show the fucked up endings of things. But then not only do we not get any follow up on any of the kind of creep vibe to it, this we get. So this is a whole series that's so focused around death being the final end and the unrelenting blackness of death. You know, nothing being beyond it. Whenever they get resurrect someone with the glove, they say, there's nothing there, there's nothing there. But Eugene kind of floats into heaven with, like, this great white glow <laughs> and, like, the camera yeah. pulls back as he's, like, literally ascending into heaven. It's like, what the fuck is going on? This, this, <laughs> this isn't a good resolution to his story for, you know, the reasons Code was saying. And this isn't a good piece of the series at all because it's so at odds with everything it's building up to, with death and even with Abaddon coming from the darkness and all that. It's just so bizarre, especially because it comes right after they keep killing Susie, which is the episode that stresses all those things so much. It's really bizarre ending. In maybe slight defence of how they do that death bit, obviously um, the glow and him rising into the sky looks like utter shit. But immediately after that, when you have that whole zoom out to the planet Earth and you see space, and he's got his little his little um, monologue voiceover that's still happening, it kind of it sort of cuts out at the end as well. I don't think it's impossible to reconcile that with how Torchwood treats death. I don't think he's necessarily gone to heaven in that sense. I think it you can see it as just a slightly more um, gloopy way of portraying death that it is still the end it's just kind of framed in a way that's a bit cheesy i don't think you have to i don't think i don't think it has to break the show obviously it's still awkward and it's still very cheesy and it's still probably a mistake well it's actually quite interesting you say that because in a way um all the other episodes are dealing with people who have actually passed on and have seen that there's nothing so i think in a, in a way like it almost sort of works, you know, because you're coming off the back of an episode that establishes that after death there is nothing. It's just the darkness, you know, um, and life is all and all that. So to have a character who is, you know, dead but hasn't passed on yet, so so still has that sort of hope and he's like, you know, you know, he's so, it's all light and airy and, you know, it's portrayed in a sort of like, almost like he is hopeful for what comes after you know or like it's you know that sort of tone but in reality it's it's almost sitting there like a sense of irony because you're sitting there like having already watched they keep killing Susie and you know there's actually nothing he's going yeah. to the void essentially um and I don't think the episode sort of handled that well but um in terms of like going for and also you don't have you have this problem like you have to remember that it was a week between the episodes and stuff, so people might not have uh, They Keep Killing Susie like fresh on their mind and the themes it played with fresh on their mind. Um, and certainly maybe a general audience who's not really thinking about this sort of stuff um, or interpreting it in that way. But certainly in doing doing either a rewatch or a watch the first time where you know binge-watching all the episodes, it does add a sort of level of um, irony to it all. Um, and the way that things end, I do think it's a cheesy and ridiculous end, and and it doesn't really gel with the rest of what the show is trying to say about death. But um, but it's almost like an a level, an extra level of feeling bad for Eugene, you know, because he's he's like, oh, I'm finally at peace now, and I can move on, and I've saved Gwen, you know, from my car and all this stuff. So it's, it's time for me to go now. And you're just sitting there the entire time, like, 
he doesn't know what's going to happen, you know. Um, but I don't know why it's... That's a really I good read of it, I think. Yeah. I do have issues with random shoes in general because I, I don't like that Eugene is portrayed positively when ultimately what he's doing, and especially because he is, um, as a character, he is like the sort of nerdy, like ostensibly non-threatening sort of nerdy mm, guy. Yeah, but yeah. the reality yeah. is guys like that are very threatening, yeah. you know, especially when they're creepy and stalkery like that. So, so I don't know how I feel about it portraying him in a positive light at all. But, you know... But ultimately, like, he, he wasn't really a threatening figure. It's just, you know... Back in the early 2000s, I don't think people were as aware of this sort of um, demographic being as uncomfortable and almost scary as they are nowadays. Um, because back then, like, being a sort of nerdy type was seen as a sort of, like, on the fringes of society. Whereas now it's like, yeah. you have a very... The world has a very different perception of these, you know, types of creepy nerdy guys um uh so so i don't know maybe maybe it would have felt differently back then you know but um certainly from my perspective nowadays um it doesn't it, it doesn't exactly sit well with me it's sort of like a product of its time like random shoes in general um where that sort of uh demographic was seen as more like almost pitiful sort of figure you know, whereas now it's more seen like as a sort of sort of threatening sort of figure. Um, so it's quite interesting to sort of portray. So, so, so I, in a way, I, I totally get why Eugene was portrayed the way he was, and you know, um, you meant to feel sorry for him. It feels, you know, it's, it's sort of sympathetic, sympathetic uh, reading of him. But, but I, I don't think such an episode would at all go down well if it aired sort of nowadays. Um, yeah. Because the attitudes have changed so much and you know yeah we're sort of orbiting this idea of um toxic masculinity aren't we and this this theme of like men sort of behaving in sort of destructive ways and i've just noticed that throughout the season season one you kind of see that popping up so ghost machine um uh susie's dad who she you know kills for simply you know understandable reasons um uh this is sort of the whole thing in combat with like the privileged dude who kind of brings Owen into his fight club yeah. and the whole sort of kind of a, the homophobia kind of oppressing kind of um, Jack's namesake and Captain Jack Harkness and it's it's just it's kind of a, a lurking thing it's maybe not brought that oh and obviously the one I, I met, the other one I meant to mention Small Worlds with the abusive dad yeah so that's that's kind of that's kind of a thing that pops up occasionally in, in the season yeah yeah so I feel like I feel that as a sort of I don't know if it's maybe intentional but it's certainly a theme you know it's something that you could certainly read into as being I think I think it's just because yeah. that's you know you <laughs> want to know <laughs> oh shit yeah oh god um, but yeah I do think it's interesting that the sort of series does yeah. sort of explore that in a way um, and it is interesting that in a sense um, some of these characters do get punished for for you know and, and even Owen plays into the sort of toxic masculinity thing with how he acts and how he is and, you know. Um, uh, uh, yeah. Owen's why combat plays... It's another one of those episodes I find really tonally confusing because a lot of it, it's doing like this take-off fight club and this, you know, ridiculously infantile masculinity idea of like, I'm some rich dude, but I just don't feel alive, man, until I'm punching some alien. You know, like I've got to punch something because yeah. my life is so shit, man, unless I'm, unless I'm punching things. Like, it's completely ridiculous. Sort of thing. Yeah, but at the end, Owen's growling at the weevil and he's like totally buying into it. 
And I'm like, what am I watching? Yeah. Am I meant to be cringing at Owen? Because, like, Bern Goodman's a great actor, but no one can sell doing these weird little lip snarls and a weevil, like, in some cool or affirming moment. It just looks utterly r- ridiculous. And so much of that episode's sense of masculinity is ridiculous. And I thought it was meant to be, but then the ending, I'm like, what's, what's going on? Am I meant to go, oh, Owen, you're going down the wrong path? Or am I meant to be like, oh, Owen, you... You're alpha, yeah, alphaing out that weevil. <laughs> nice. I, I, yeah, we're meant to believe that Owen is sort of given in to this sort of uh, masculinity, this sort of, sort of primal, you know, thing that these other men are buying into. And are we meant to believe that Owen has that sort of um, potential for violence in him, or you know, and how we're meant to take that as well? Um, obviously, ultimately, as, as towards the end, more portrayed as he was, he's kind of he's wanting to die. Um, but certainly, like, the stuff surrounding it, you never... It is a bit, like, tonally inconsistent, you know? Um, and certainly a bit confusing the way it plays out with Owen, but... Owen doesn't end, end up shooting Jack, doesn't he, in the finale? Oh. <laughs> Owen kills <Yeah>. Jack. <laughs> Whoopsies. Um, yeah, I suppose that in itself. Owen obviously has a lot of um, conflict within him, and... God only knows how that will be explored. I don't know. If it will. Don't say anything, I'm going to kill you both if you do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. And we touched on it earlier, but I just want to stress how much I adore that moment in They Keep Killing Susie, where Susie's all like, Jack, you can't kill me because look at me, I'm the last thing of Gwen Cooper. Can't you see it? Just the smallest bit of Gwen. And it's like, we've seen these scenes so many times where, like, they should obviously just shoot and kill the bad guy in these shows, but they're like, they remind me of so-and-so, or I can't, my humanity's too strong to kill someone, and then we got all this contrived bullshit. It reminds me of how classic Who episodes would pad out to, like, six things just by introducing these stupid contrivances that we don't need, but they just keep things running in the long time. And so I totally thought, you know, Susie wouldn't get shot because I was just appealing to the humanity and the show's all about that. But then Jack just you know, says so resolutely, not one bit, and shoots her. And it's just such an amazing Torchwood moment oh, of, yeah. you know, this isn't your grandmother's Doctor Who. <laughs> this is we really yeah. will terminate these ideas, you know, we're for real here. It's just, I think that is so much more mature than all, like, all the sex and violence they front load in the first two episodes. Just this idea of, fuck this narrative bullshit of sustaining characters to keep them around and appealing to characters' humanities. Because these yeah. characters are fucked up and they will kill people. I love that moment. It's so good. It's like, it, well, it's like entirely subverting your expectations because that is how it plays out in like almost every other show. They go like that. Oh no, you, you can't shoot me. You can't because I want to remind you of your good friend, you know. But but the fact that Jack just, you know, isn't taken in by it is is so fascinating and so good, and it just it plays out so well because. Um, it sort of like it, it tells you so much about Jack's character as well. That sort of like he is kind of in a sense disconnected almost. You know, he does have a completely different view to things. Whereas you could imagine that maybe another character, you know, even on the team, might have been taken in by what Susie was doing. But Jack's just like no bullshit. Like doesn't like you know he knows it's not really Gwen, and he know he's not going to be taken in by it. So he just shoots to kill. You know and. I do think it is a really, really good moment. I really they really, they really commit to Jack being the one who makes the unthinkable choices. You know, it's the same in um, Small Worlds somewhere earlier when, when that ends with him letting the fairies take the girl into the forest and just being completely like screamed out by her mother for it. Like, and that, that episode really establishes how just disconnected Jack is. That's such a running theme of the character. And I think it's, it's commendable that the show commits to that as strongly as it does. 
And you get it again, um, although in this case it wasn't really a disconnect, more like an understanding um, and out of time, you know, where like no other character would have liked, what's his name? Shit, I forgot his name. <laughs> what's the guy called? Who knows? John. Man. Um, is it John? Okay, yeah. Uh, it is, isn't it? Uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, he lets... You know, he sits there and holds his hand while he dies and all that stuff. And it's like, that was probably one of the most powerful moments in series one for me because there's so many layers to it. Um, on one hand, it's like, who else would better understand the idea of being completely, again, out of time? You know, nobody but Jack would get it. And, you know, nobody but, but Jack really has the attitude to death and sort of understanding and that sort of almost catharsis of death that um that Jack gets because it's, it's sort of like it's basically the one thing he really wants above anything else. He wants to be able to die, you know? And whether that be like I'm not saying it's necessarily in a suicidal way where if if his immortality was switched off he would go and off himself. But certainly he wants in a sense there is there's this idea that he wants there to be an end, a sort of full stop to his life, you know, a point where it sort of brings it all together and um, because it's like, it's the whole idea that a story isn't really worth anything, worth anything until it has an end so Jack struggles with this in a, in a way, and the fact that the scene was played there was a tenderness to it you know, um, and that shared understanding and, and holding his hand and everything. It was it was so sweet and so heartbreaking. And the whole time you're just sitting there, it was like Jack was given John like the one thing that he himself can never have. It was like a gift almost. You know, this relief and this um, you know this freedom that he can't personally have, but he can help someone else achieve it. You know, and I really do believe for one second, like. Like, I'm sorry, I don't believe for one second that any other team member would have been able to make that choice. Just like the other choices, you know, Jack makes, like giving the girl away to the fairies and stuff, effectively killing her, you know, or, or letting her die. Like, those are all choices that, that you sort of, in a sense, need Jack around for. Because, you know, who else could do it? And just the same with confronting Susie, he has a sort of different view of death and a different view of life in general that allows him to make those decisions that someone more human, in a sense, wouldn't be able to, which I think is a really fascinating thing. And, and like you say, I, I really appreciate that Torchwood doesn't shy away from that, you know? It really yeah. leans in and goes, you know, uh, you know, it's not scared to explore these sorts of things, which I thought was really, really good. That as you characterise Jack there, that that very much plays into my treasured episode, Small Worlds, ending with the girl being taken by away by the fairies, as yeah. we were saying. <laughs> I love that episode because I think running through the whole series is this idea of hidden fantastical worlds that kind of rub up and jar up against the real world. You know, and people not seeing them or being protected from them by Torchwood or whoever else. You know, this plays in all the demon stuff it does. But even even the whole domestic life paralleled with Torchwell life is, you know, all these ideas of these worlds that are right next to each other but are kind of obscured. It's a very it's game a thin line between them. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's yeah. a it's a kind of a Neil Gaiman or just urban fantasy yeah. thing in general we see. And Small Worlds is totally like the really focused execution of that in series one how it handles the fairies but and they're in a much more older mythological way and in a much more tortured way with how 
I don't know if you wouldn't call them evil so much, but these actual forces of nature that aren't, you know, playing to our expectations and they aren't how we would perceive yeah. them, their own agenda and how Torchwood is about dealing with that. Whereas Doctor Who would be putting the optimistic sheen of it and having, you know, the Doctor yeah. save the day or whatever. Torchwood as well, this world exists and, you know, we we have to let it exist because that's, it is, that is what it is. I love how yeah. that episode plays all that. Well, it's like the fairies in that episode are, of course, entirely consistent with mythology and how fairies were sort of originally envisaged. Envisaged the whole idea that the fairy world is just is just one step away from the real world and the sort of thing. Like there is a certain um, plenty of stories about the idea that fairies entice people over and all this, and and that you can become trapped in the fairy fairy world and all this stuff, which is. So it was really an interesting take on it, and and I do like the idea that it plays along with those th- these themes that um, that Torchwood sort of is consistent with. Just the idea that there was two completely different worlds, but just separated by the thinnest like membrane, and any moment you can sort of pass through and sort of end up in either side of them, which is which is really fascinating. I like the way the Torchwood deals with it. Um, I was going to say something else. I've Forgot it. Oh, that's what I was gonna say. Speaking on the sort of idea of comparing Dutch and how Torchwood deals with it, um, I I do think it would be a great mental exercise to try and go through every episode in Torchwood and think to yourself, how would the Doctor and companions deal with this monster of the week? Would they come to the same conclusions? You know, because also the Doctor does. Doctor has quite a lot in common with Jack, but they also deviate in like huge ways. So so. Could the Doctor sort of sympathise with Jack's viewpoint and sort of understand it and even make the same decisions? Or, you know, you know, how would how would it end up? Um and and even things like countryside and stuff, I always like like things that are so thematically removed from Doctor Who that are so the only really work in the context of Torchwood how would the Doctor deal with that? Because these are all like these are all stories and stuff that, because they take place in the Doctor Who universe, they could just easily as easily happen to the Doctor, you know, or he could just as easily encounter them, and you know. So imagine like ten running around with you know Rose. How would they deal with this stuff? I just thought like that would be a really really fascinating thing to explore yeah, and to think about. That's a very good question to raise. That idea of what would the Doctor's presence mean for these kinds of stories or what does the doctor's absence mean for these kinds of stories yeah that's that's absolutely a very interesting valuable thought exercise to have for sure I'm wary of dragging this any further into Doctor Who than it already is, but I think that question of how would the Doctor possibly cope with these incredibly dark, incredibly kind of realistic and gritty narratives, that's a question that I think people were trying to answer a lot in the 90s, particularly with the VNAs before Virgin got the license ripped off of them. Like uh, The VNAs are kind of infamous for having all this incredibly like, brutal sex, violence, and kind of just darkness in them. And it's kind of something that's never kind of surged back onto the TV show itself, but it's something that's... It's, there's a history of people trying to answer this question. It is very interesting yeah the novels certainly do deal with um sort of darker themes even even though obviously uh, the bbc books series did tone it down the EDs still delve into that they're still more adult than the show ever was or ever became so um but i do think there is you know it would be interesting to see sort of like a obviously new who um 
versions of the Doctor and how they might deal with it because in a sense uh, when it comes to the sort of wilderness era and the darkness and the you know the sex and the violence and you know the gore and the moral issues and stuff that those stories dealt with um, they were still very much like it's almost like the doctors at the time like Seven and Eight were sort of crafted for those worlds you know um, obviously we're setting aside the audios right now in terms of Eight but just speaking about the novels specifically because they did have those darker themes um, those are two doctors that were were moulded you know aside from obviously Seven's stuff on TV but even then you know they kind of it was used as sort of um, you know it led sort of naturally into the novels and sort of the darker themes and the way his characterization was I don't I'm not an expert on Seven though so I can't really comment very much but um but I do think it's it's fascinating that those sorts of eras did craft a version of the Doctor that was suited to those sorts of stories. So so it's really like it's more like when you're comparing like Doctor Who and Torchwood, also they were airing at the same time. Um so so the idea essentially is like imagine you just displace the characters essentially, you know, and and you're not really dealing with a version of the Doctor that was crafted with these stories in mind you're dealing with a doctor that was essentially from from a version of the universe that isn't so dark and gritty and you know uh morally complicated because that's more like well it is morally complicated but in different ways you know um but i do think it'd be fascinating to think about like how 10 or 11 or 12 or even uh 13 would deal with it you know um I'd be interested in a Doctor Who take on that sequence in day one where uh, the woman's walking around Cardiff and we kind of get those point of view shots of her face and then we're seeing all the sex signs everywhere. I know this is Russell T. Davies, one of his favourite sequences in the show, like the pervasiveness of sexuality everywhere. Uh, I'd be truly fascinated to see. uh, (laughs) Lots of... Lots of putting billboards everywhere on every like street corner. I always thought that was interesting. How like Russell was like he he really loved loved that sequence, but because he was like oh you, you know it's commenting on on this, the sexualized nature of Western culture and stuff. But on the same note, it's like it's not really saying anything. It's just kind of yeah. going. Is it yeah, commenting yeah. or is it just like pointing? Yeah, because and and the sort of um. In the behind the scenes, he seems to think that it is saying something profound, but in reality, it's just going, "Hey, look how you know sexualized our culture is," but it doesn't really see anything yeah, about meanwhile, it. Meanwhile, we live in a society. Yeah. And it, it, it kind of also um, implies that, like, it's almost a positive thing because he says, "Like, oh, it's pointing out how sexualized culture is, but how how great it is." there's this alien who thinks that that's wonderful about us but it's kind of like do we really like given that the sort of society is the sexualized society is is inherently sort of exploitative at least in the form that we have it it's like is it probably the best thing to to have your um your conclusion be that it's great that some there there might be an alien out there who thinks it's you know wonderful <laughs> that we have this sort of these issues in society so I don't know what he was achieving with that but um, and it's certainly nothing new or uh, groundbreaking to go you know look oh my god there's boobies on walls you know it's not exactly I don't know he wasn't really contributing to the conversation there but fair enough Russell you can like what you want of the non-Jack leads I'm just wondering in season one who who's your favourite of the main characters because I think the, the, you can kind of make an argument for each of them I'm just wondering what, like, who's you, who, 
Uh, you could count Reese, yeah. I really like uh, Ty Owen's performance as Reese. I think it grounds the show so well, and he plays so well with Gwen. I think a huge factor to why Series 1 worked was, was Reese. I... I'm gonna have to. Say, I, I mean, I like them all. I do genuinely like them all. Like normally, you have like sort of show like this where there's like a you think there's like a weaker link or in, or something like that. But I, I don't think Torchwood has a weak link at all. They're all so distinct and so well realised. But uh, my favourite is Yanto. <laughs> I just love him. He's great. I just love everything about his character and sort of like the sort of butler vibes he has. He's very yeah, endearing. Yeah, he is. And also the audios and stuff, the ones I've listened to that were set during series one. Oh, he's um, so good in them, yeah. Yeah, The Last Beacon, um, another big Finnish audio. Yeah, which he wrote, which the actor for Yanti yes, wrote himself. Yes, um, But that's that's another really good audio if you want to listen to that. I know it develops the sort of relationship between Owen and Yanto, and Yanto is absolutely lovely in it. So, yeah, big recommend. Anyway, Gig, what's your favourite? I do love Amrisa and Dianto. I think for me, though, I think I have to just take the kind of pleb option, just go with Gwen, because I just think her storyline and how amazingly unsympathetic she can be just makes me like, and also just how brilliant Eve Miles is in the part. I think she's a kind of character who, not to drag it onto Doctor Who again, but you don't really get a character that flawed on Doctor Who until Clara in Series 8, basically. I love that she's just, there's a storyline just driven by her just constant like disappointing the viewer and how she keeps kind of getting it wrong and how but even despite that she's just got so much heart i'm just i'm just i just really love gwen yeah she, she's so charming and the moral conflict is always so good because it's like even even when she's at her sort of worst you can't help but like her because you sort of understand what she's going through and the sort of turmoil she's in so yeah i think she's absolutely lovely and also, shout out to Jack, because Jack is probably oh, my yeah. second favourite. Oh, yeah. Jack the Snap. Jack is, he's just wonderful as a character, and honestly, like, I really love what they've done with him and Torchwood and how they developed him and stuff. Yeah, that's so great. One thing we didn't touch on was what Barrowman does with his performance in relation to Doctor Who, which I think, yeah. I'd, I'd say, for the first few episodes, I think he plays him quite close to as he was in Doctor Who, which is, you know, the lovable, sexy rogue, con man kind of vibe. Yeah. I think the first three episodes is playing that and it feels weird because this is not Doctor Who and he's a leader in this show and the characters are kind of suspicious of him, distrustful of him. They don't know where he's from, what he's doing here, what his whole deal is. And so to see him be so assertive and acting like he's kind of comic relief in a way, it, it's, it introduces this interesting kind of tension in the early episodes. And then as we go on and we see him more and more, he's characterized a bit more we get this very interesting kind of modulation of the performance by Barrowman, where, like we were saying earlier, how he acts differently, Jack, when he's with the Doctor in the Doctor Who Series 3. Over here, he, he starts getting this different kind of vibe where he's a bit less overtly comic and he's a bit... A darker is probably kind of simplifying it, but he's a little bit more yeah. serious in a way, or he's a little bit more guarded, a little bit more dangerous feeling, especially because we don't have, yeah. you know, a figure like the Doctor to go, oh, everything will be all right. Like, he feels a little more dangerous in this show, and I think Barrowman does really good work kind of modulating the performance between the two shows when it goes back and forth. So it feels like the same character, but very much a different figure in each shows, and the acting reflects that. Well, what I really like about that is that because you get that extra depth and that extra sort of darkness to him later on in series one, it then sort of completely reframes his sort of comic, flirty side. It's a facade, essentially, because that's not really Jack. I mean, it is an aspect of him, but, you know, you get the 
impression from Doctor Who and again early series one um sort of where that sort of um that side of him is it's kind of like he's something he puts on to hide you know that sort of darkness and the loneliness and and what he's dealt with being as he is immortal and what he's seen and what he's had to do in his life and obviously he never truly loses it of course because again it is a part of him and you know um but to have that sort of stripped away and to sort of see Jack for as a sort of fully realised character who has more dimensions than just that sort of jokey, flirty thing um, was really good and it really, really strengthened him and he's easily one of my favourite sort of characters from the Doctor Who universe now because Torchwood just fleshed him out so much and to have that contrast between Torchwood and Doctor Who is especially interesting because you can sort of easily come to the conclusion that perhaps, you know, who knows exactly why, you know, maybe there is, you know, I'll discover and behind the scenes stuff or whatever, why Barrowman specifically chose, because I know it was conscious of him, you know, I know it was a conscious decision, but as as to the why he specifically chose to have that difference between Doctor Who and, and Doctor Who, maybe it's because it's an adult show and a kid show, sort of that difference, or there's, there's a sort of added character element where it's like, could he just could he be putting it on almost like this sort of um, lighter sort of version of himself around the doctor so the doctor doesn't really see the worst parts of him because obviously when it comes to like the series one time and even you know um, in series three up until the point he sort of even even then up until the point he sort of parts away to the doctor there is a sort of idea that um, he's he's almost hiding part of himself or like he's trying to be seen as more ethical than he actually is because the Doctor is also so judgmental of you know um, the few times that those darker parts of him sort of seep through like when he was aiming at the future kind and all that stuff so um, I think it's quite fascinating and it says a little bit Jack that um, that he, he does change his uh, attitude around this person that he idolises so much you know um, but yeah I think it's fascinating I think that what Torchwood made him out to be was was great and it, it really, really elevated the character in so many ways. But yeah. And I thought John is absolutely amazing in the role. Like sometimes when you see how like absolutely bananas he is, you know, you know, as a person you forget how good of an actor he actually is. You know? So yeah, I was pleasantly surprised by that. The other thing that really confuses me as far as Russell T. Davies his thoughts and writing goes is why was the pterodactyl outside at the end of the first episode well i was reading on the website about this uh the pterodactyl is actually sort of expanded upon apparently they just release it they just it has free reign they just let it fly about cardiff and apparently like people in cardiff just don't comment on it and it kept eating sheep (laughs) <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's why they invented the barbecue sauce and Susie tamed it um, and the barbecue sauce the barbecue sauce is essentially just a special blend of things they squirt it on anything they want the pterodactyl to interpret as food so that's why they squirted it on Cyberwoman so um, anything that has the barbecue sauce on it the pterodactyl will eat and that's how they trained it to you know, associate that taste and that smell with food rather than sheep and stuff being eaten yeah. is, is so, there a- there's your Perception Point filter on it or something? Or the no, no, res- they just... They, yeah. I mean, from a distance, it just looks like a big bird, doesn't it? <laughs> a big... <laughs> a big bird. But yeah. apparently, yeah, like, they just let it have free range flap about the city and supposedly nobody really comments on it. 
so that's great. <laughs> I, I'd have loved for it to meet Ramsey. Yes, I agree. But alas, um, that's that is, the pterodactyl isn't really. It's just sort of there, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a, it's an effect shot, so they're not going to dull it out that often. That's a lot of work. I, 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 I appreciate that it was sort of added as a sort of like almost world building sort of thing. Like, look at this dinosaur that we keep in the hub. You know, it references the fact that the rift, you know, crosses space time, and sometimes dinosaurs get through supposedly. Um, uh, uh, but <laughs> the fact that like Chibna was like. Oh, guys, do you remember the CGI pterodactyl we had in episode one and it was never mentioned again? How about we have it be the solution to uh, a Cyberman problem? You know? Like, the fact that they brought it back just for so it could eat Lisa and then it was just never seen again. She punches it in that scene. It's, it's incredible. It's a full-on fight scene. She just whacks it one. Yeah. I was watching how they um, filmed that earlier. It was literally just a... a a beak on a stick. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, basically. Um, apparently, the, the the cast named it, but I don't remember what it is because it was a really some Welsh, Welsh name. name. Yeah. Yeah. So, what can I say? It's basically a, another member of the team. To, to bring this full circle, the, the whole dinosaur coming out of a rift in time thing certainly reminds me of Primeval. another show. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Primeval. 